0: Welcome back to Reports from the Front, our veteran interview series. Due to some descriptions of violence and combat, listener discretion is advised for today's episode, in which I interview former Infantry Marine Sergeant Rich Cervantes about his experiences on deployment during the war in Iraq. 14 hours in Huseba.
1: Call it in. It's
0: Danger Close. Welcome everyone to Danger Close, a war film podcast. We have a very special guest today, former Marine Rich Cervantes. I do know Rich. We did serve in the Marine Corps at the same time and we have met before, but we were in different units and uh, different jobs. So I am kind of just as new to hearing his stories as all you guys are. I'm going to hand it off to Rich right away. I want to hear a little bit about his background and we can get into kind of his stories. He's a uh, definitely been through some intense experiences and I think this will be a learning lesson for me as well as the rest of the audience. So uh, Rich, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much for your service and thank you for taking the time to come on the show today.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and also likewise for your service. Thank you for that.
0: For sure. I was kind of joking around with my girlfriend before this interview that You know, when I tell people that, oh, I was a Marine and I was deployed to Iraq, you know, they, they get all these images from film and whatever. And they think like, oh, he must have been doing all this dangerous, crazy stuff. And it's like, to me, I'm like, nah, I did air traffic control. I was on a base. It was pretty safe. We got hit here and there, but it wasn't really any more dangerous than a lot of other jobs. And then when I read your stories, I've read your, your commendations and your citations, I read about the stories where you were awarded these medals. And to me, it's like, it's the same thing to me where I'm like, oh, man, Rich really went through some crazy shit that I've only read about in books or seen in films. So I can kind of see that perspective from people who have not been in the military. You joined in what, 2002?
1: Yeah. So I actually joined in 2001. Okay. Best friend from high school. We grew up together, uh, co captains on the basketball team, all that bit. His dad was a Vietnam vet. Um, He'd done a couple tours. Uh, He was a Green Beret, and then he later got a commission and became a company commander. And, um, you know, being a baby from the 80s, I was always into, you know, patriotism and military stuff and always looked up to uh, my buddy Steve's dad. You know, growing up, but I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school because I graduated in 2000. And so, you know, me and Steve had played basketball together, and then um, I was going to play over at the local junior college, uh, Sierra College, and then he was going to try out for uh, Sac City. So, you know, I'm going to Sierra. Steve's over at Sac City, and then he ends up uh, dropping out, and he gets an ultimatum from his dad, basically to you know join the military. Or hit the streets. And so, Steve ended up uh, joining the Marine Corps. And like I said, him and I were best friends since we were really little. And, um, you know, he was – Steve was kind of going down the wrong path before that. And then after the 13 weeks he spent down in um, San Diego at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, uh, he came back just, hey, he's wearing clothes that fit. Uh, he was very mature. You know, then the way he acted and stuff, and I'm like, man, look at this guy. <laughs> and it happened to ha- happen at the same time as my girlfriend breaking up with me, my high school sweetheart. And so it was just like everything happens for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. So Steve, he's on, um, you know, leave from boot camp before he goes and does his training. Steve's like, hey man, why don't you come and, uh, you know, just check out the recruiter and just, you know, see what they have to say. So I go down there, just like, oh, let's go check it out. Yeah, I signed up that day. (laughs) I don't know what it was. They just have it down to a science. They see a lost soul at the moment and they're promising, you know, travel, adventurism, discipline, you know, all these things that as a young, you know, I think I was um, 19 at the time. Looking at like, wow, man, okay, what do I do now since, you know, I was in this relationship and and I was even trying to get my basketball, you know, career started and I had destroyed my ankle. Like the week after I got broken up with. It was just like a double doozy. So, Steve came in at the right time and was like, hey, come check out the recruiter. So, yeah, man. I signed up that day and I told my parents and they're like, what? Dad was super proud. Mom was super worried. Sure. I hadn't picked a job specialty at that moment. This was like springtime of 01. So, they told me about the delayed entry program. And I wanted to play at least one season of of college basketball before I went in. I think you can do like up to a year, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. of the delayed entry program. So, okay, cool. You know, I'll I'll get ready. Um, I will be in shape because of uh, college basketball. Um, But it'll give me some time to pick a good uh, military occupational specialty and uh, do some studying beforehand to make it a nice, smooth transition into boot camp. Well... I'm like deciding what I want to do, you know, because I had gotten good grades in high school. You know, if I was going to do the Marines thing, I was planning on doing it for four years and coming back out and continuing uh, college and basketball. You know, should I do something now as far as the job-wise or should I just go for the adventurism and then when I get out, I can pick something in college to focus on, get a job after that, you know. So... I uh, I was kind of split at first between intelligence, security forces, nuclear, biological, chemical expert, and uh, infantry, and I don't know what it was, but the photo they used for infantry, like, sold me. They had two guys <laughs> on a zodiac, you know, going high speed, and I was like, what? They had war paint on, you know, and their rifles. I'm like, I want to do that. I want this to be a cool experience. I want to see the world. You know, again, this is like springtime, summertime of 01. Mm -hmm. Me being a, you know, young 19-year-old, I'm like, man, we're not even going to go to war. I'm just going to get some cool training, cool stories and see the world. It'd be awesome. So, yeah, I signed up for the infantry and my recruiter kept trying to talk me out of it. He's like, no, you scored really high on your test. Like, you should uh, pick something, you know, you can get like a really cool job, you know, this and that. And I'm like, nah, that I could deal with that in college or whatever afterwards. Like, this is where I need to go and do something fun and challenging. And so, yeah, I decided on infantry. And uh, months go by, you know, I'm in school. I'm, I'm playing basketball and September hits. And as you're well aware of, of September 11th of 2001, that was 9-11, which was very rough for my mom because at the time, when I was a freshman in college – I had basketball practice that day and she had woken me up that morning just hysterical. Crying, telling me, you know, we're going to war. And I I just remember that day very vividly of like waking up and like, what the hell is going on? The first tower was in smoke. And I'm like, well, how do you know we're going to war? Like maybe that was an accident. And as I'm watching this, I see the the second tower get hit. And I'm like, okay. What, what the heck is going on? This, you know, this can't be an accident. There's two of them now. And that was like a a very vivid moment of like a reality check of what is, you know, I'm getting into. And so, uh, my recruiter called me that day to, you know, just make sure I was aware of what was going on,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And he asked me that day, he's like, hey, do you still want to go infantry? And I told him, I was like, hey, I have more of a reason now to than I did before, 100%. So, that was, uh, that was a big thing. Played some basketball a couple months. And then in the late February, end of February, went down to MCRD, San Diego, to uh, kick off the whole Marine Corps career. Go to boot camp and get on the yellow footprints and get yelled at and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Shave the head.
0: That was quite an experience for sure. Rich shipped out for Marine Corps recruit training for 13 weeks, the longest boot camp in the armed forces. There he went through all the physical fitness, martial arts, and marksmanship training and all the testing and mental preparation that it takes to earn the title of Marine.
1: I was uh, I was in good shape from, from basketball and um, my parents were really good with discipline and so was my grandma. Just shout out to grandma for uh, – <laughs> Having to use her paddle every once in a while when I was young to keep you straight. Uh, match that with playing sports, like it wasn't too much of a deal um, to get yelled at. <laughs> what was supposed to be 13 weeks ended up being five months at boot camp. Oh, really? Yeah. So, everything was going good at first. The only thing was, you know, I'm, I'm six foot seven and I was eating the same amount of food as everybody else. mm. And I was losing a lot of weight. Sure. I'm six foot seven. I got down to like like sixty five pounds. No way. Yeah. That's crazy. One night in boot camp at the squad bay, you know, it's the little thing we sleep in or whatever with all the bunks and stuff. you just probably seen a full metal jacket. I, uh, I saw some guys eating some food at night and I'm like, where'd you get that? And they're like, oh, he's, you know, take a little extra from the chow hall and you uh, put it in your pocket, you know, big deal. Come back and you eat that way. You have like you know some <laughs> energy and you can uh, you know not lose too much weight. And I'm like, huh? Don't you get in trouble for that? They're like, not if they don't know. So I'm like, oh man. Now I joined the Marine Corps to become like this badass warrior, and I'm over here dwindling away like it's uh, you know early 1940s in Germany, right? You know. And so I'm like, all right, yeah. So I started doing it. I started taking uh, peanut butter and jelly and bread. From the chow hall and eating at night. And I felt better. I'll be honest. I felt way better. I'll bet. I was trying to get a double ration from the drill instructors. And they, they didn't even mention like how much weight I was losing. But they, I don't know. I don't know why they, they didn't do it. So anyway, you know, I, was, I, I started doing that. It probably lasted about a week maybe. And we find ourselves doing uh, mar- martial arts training for, for physical training. And we're doing some body hardening. Which is when you know you have a partner and you strike each other, and you're doing it in certain areas to basically destroy the nerves, so you don't have sensitivity there. And I was getting kicked in the leg. That's like one of the most common things that we do. Just you know, right above the knee on the side, the lower quad area. Just get kicked in the leg several times, and then you switch, and you, you know, this partner switches whatever. And my senior drill instructor comes over, and he's like, "Hey." He had, in his hand, he had like a reflective strap that we use for running. He takes this strap and he like reaches down into my pocket, in my cargo pocket, in my on my trousers to put it in there. And he pulls his hand out and his hand is covered in grape jelly. Oh, man. And he's just like looking at, it, at his hand, looking at me. I'm looking at his hand, I'm looking at him. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. My heart like sank. <laughs> it was like that feeling of like all this pressure on your chest. And oh, man. I had so much respect for this drill instructor because, you know, himself, he was a combat veteran. I think he went to like Kosovo or Bosnia or something in the 90s Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, mixed it up out there. But he's like looking at this jelly and looking at me. And then he like puts his his hand in my face like right just like barely, like not even touching. He's like, what? You know, he just starts doing the drill instructor thing. Ah, ah, what (laughs) is this? Ah, you know. And this is a senior drill instructor. Like, usually, like, the junior guys will get on you for everything. And, like, he's supposed to be, like, the dad of the platoon. Right. Well, dad's, dad's pissed. And I'm like, oh, boy. Here we go. So, anyway, you know, we all go back to the squad bay. And everything's by the numbers. And everything's like a countdown and all this stuff. You know, know we are given us time to push stuff away and get online. Over at my bunk, or as we call it, a rack, my footlocker is... Locked onto the second bunk up top. <laughs> and so, like, they're secured by a master lock. And if you put pressure on a master lock, you can't turn it. You know, if you're, tra- if you're like doing a pulling uh, motion, you're trying to turn the dial, mm-hmm. you can't do it. You got to squeeze it and do it. And, like, everybody's, like, focused on themselves because, like, they're against the clock right now. And I'm over here like, I can't even get my foot locker open. And so, you know, from then on, I was known as the thief or thief, they called me. Nice. And I'm like, how did this happen, man? You know, I like really never got in trouble, you know, like grandma kind of fixed that quick with a paddle my dad, he was a good disciplinarian or whatever. And I was like, I made a bad decision. Like I thought <laughs> I was doing something good for my health, <laughs> but apparently I put my health over policy in the group. And that was a big no-no. And so, yeah, I got uh, smoked a lot and I was addressed as thief. And oh, that just ate away at me, man. They made me pack all my stuff and stand in the, on the, the front of the uh, squad bay and they're telling me how they're going to send me home because I, I was a thief. I stole, you know, this and that. And, uh, man, I, uh, I broke down. I honestly <laughs> broke down. I never, I never cried in boot camp except for that moment right there, mm-hmm. where they're like, "You're going home." I was like, "Oh my god, are you kidding me?" Like I'd always made my family proud, you know, with school, with basketball, like whatever, didn't get in trouble, and now I'm going home because I stole some bread and peanut butter and a little bit of jelly. What the hell? Because you were
0: wasting away, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: because I was wasting away, and obviously, I, I didn't, I didn't get sent home, but they got to me for sure, for sure. After that, man, I was like a little bit depressed, but then I just became like, you know, like Gomer Pyle in a Full Metal Jacket where he like flips a switch. I can kind of connect with that a little bit because I started having like emotions and feelings. I'm this like freaking robot of uh, doing what has to be done, not really thinking about it, not feeling anything about it and just trying to dig myself out of a hole, basically. To fast forward a little bit, we were in field week can't remember what phase that was in, but it's basically a week prior to the crucible. You're doing just a bunch of field stuff. You're doing a bunch of hikes or humps, as they call them. Um, all these different exercises or whatever. And you're, you're actually in Camp Pendleton. You're not in MCRD. And I was paired up with my squad leader, whose name was Schlund. Schlund was a big dude. Like, I'm 6'7", but I'm, like, pretty thin. This guy was, like, 6'5", and just looked like a corn-fed, you know, dude. And he was a tough, tough guy. He was, he was a good squad leader, or at least I thought he was. And so, you know, we set up our bivouac, which is French for camp. You know, we set up our camp. And throughout the week, I had noticed that I was, like, starting to miss food. And I'm like, what the heck, you know? What's going on? One night... We had uh, gotten woken up for Reveille at like 5.30 in the morning. Sorry, this I backtracked a little bit. That was we were camping for a little bit, but before that, before we went camping, one of the most significant days I had in boot camp was we were uh, woken up real early at five, five o'clock in the morning. it was like before Reville, and everybody had to get online. and um, the drill instructors like, everybody pull out you know two MREs. All right? I know I got mine, mine's in my little war bag go in there. There's only one MRE in there. I'm like, what the hell? So I pull up my one MRE and I'm like, where's my other one? Schlund has two. Everybody else has two. The drill instructor pulls up the trash can and he pulls out a torn up MRE. And he's like, who doesn't have an MRE? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, oh, this, you know, yeah, this recruit, sir, whatever. <laughs> and oh my God. He pulled me into the duty hut, which is their office, and I was already a thief, right? So I already had that label, and then this happened. And so he's got me up against the wall, and I swear, like, my feet were dangling probably. I don't know. <laughs> and he's, like, choking me with his hand, and he's got this Chili Mac, MRE, in my face. And he's like, I know you did it. You're the thief. I know you ate this. You know, you, you weren't supposed to, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, no, sir, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm like, no, I'm not going to admit something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And he's like rubbing it all over my face, you know. <laughs> like I had a bean in my ear, you know, this chili mac. So, he's like, oh, he's like, you didn't do it, huh? I'm like, no, sir, I, I, this recruit didn't, didn't eat the MRE. He's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. So, he has me come out at the, in the front of everybody, has me kneel down on the ground, and it has everybody like basically like a, a circular line they call the wagon wheel. And everybody was supposed to come up to me and him and say if they were the ones that were responsible for eating the MRE. And everybody said no. And then I got smoked a lot.
0: <laughs> Just for those who don't know the terminology, getting smoked means that you got put up front and center and made to do like crazy exercises for five minutes straight or whatever, while drones is screaming at you, right?
1: Oh yeah, it's like a hundred percent effort, and you know it goes for—I don't know what their their rules are, but I don't know five to ten minutes maybe. But it seems like it's an eternity because you're going so hard, right? And you're drenched in sweat. You're drenched in sweat. I mean, you're wearing boots. You're wearing your um, you know fatigues or whatever your camis, as we call them in the Marine Corps. And that's probably not your the first time of the day that you were um, working out because you might have had your physical training in the morning. And then, oh, it's, it's mid-morning. You're getting smoked. Oh, it's just after lunch with a full gut. You're getting smoked. Oh, it's the afternoon. Oh, it's just after dinner. Oh, it's right before bed. It happens, you know, several times. You know, in a week, you'll get smoked quite a few times. And so, I'll get smoked for that. And then, we we'll go out to the field. And that's when, you know, meals again are starting to disappear. And I'm like, what is going on? You know? And so, they really started messing with me, uh, the drill instructors. They were—they uh, found this like big rock and they put it in my pack. They're like, hey, you're, you're taking this. I'm like, all right, you know, what, <laughs> what What the heck is this for? Just to make it harder, obviously. But then I got smoked so much that I ended up jacking my knee up and I got an inf- infection in my knee, cellulitis. Had to go to the hospital and then I ended up in the medical rehab platoon for, you know, however many weeks, five weeks or whatever it was. And that was hard because you have everything lined up. You have your graduation date lined up. The girl that broke up with you that was the reason that you joined. Hey, you guys are writing each other every day again. You know, oh, I can't wait to see her. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. And now you don't know when you're going to graduate. How long it's going to take to heal up. You know, how long it going to take to rehab. So, I go to... The medical rehab platoon, and there's guys in there that have been there for almost a year, you know, broken bones and all these different things. And so, one of the cool things about it was silver lining, I guess. You get to sleep a little bit longer because obviously you're broke, you're hurt, and you get to uh, lift weights, which we really didn't do during our normal routine schedule for the the boot camp curriculum. So. By doing that, I was able to actually get stronger upper body, was able to do more pull-ups, got my knee better. And then it was time to go back to a platoon after about five weeks. And so if I rem- remember correctly, I had went to the rehab platoon on like training day 45 or something like that. The drill instructor in MRP is like, all right, you're picking up with um, Kilo Company and you're training day 54. Uh, And I'm like, wait, you just like added nine training days that I didn't do, you know,
0: which if you do the math, that was the crucible. The crucible is an endurance event that takes place over 54 hours in which recruits participate in 40 miles of long marches, nine infiltration courses with weapons, and are tested on their teamwork and problem-solving capabilities.
1: So I told him, I was like, I had gotten injured and came to, I went to the hospital on training day 45. He's like, I said 54. And I kind of looked at him puzzled. Like, I, I'm trying to tell you that I, I haven't done those training days. But it was his way. So, yeah, secret's out there. I told people before, but
0: I never did the Crucible. And that was that's a big deal for guys, you know? Oh, for sure. You get your Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor after the Crucible. That is the first time you go from being a recruit to being a Marine, which is a big transition. So, yeah, I yeah. can see that being upsetting and frustrating.
1: Very upsetting, disappointing. And that was like a rite of passage that I didn't get to partake in, you know. And at the time, which looking back on it now, I'm like, ah, whatever, you know. You know, looking back on the actual stuff I did afterwards. But during that time, that was hard. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I even told the guys when I joined um, their platoon, I was like, yeah, I never did the crucible. They're like, you're not going to be a real Marine. <laughs> and I'm like, I, there's nothing I can do. I, I told the drill instructor about it and it was this how it was, I guess. Finished out with Kilo Company, graduated the week of Fourth of July, and my family came down. All three sets of grandparents were there, which was super rare but awesome. Um, that's one of those times in my life that like that happens, which is really cool to like reflect on. We went to Disneyland, and I went from boot camp to Disneyland. You know, it's a big, uh, big change there. <laughs> I found myself in the happiest place on earth, you know, it's pretty crazy. So after a little bit of leave for the holiday, went down to Camp Pendleton for School of Infantry in the Infantry Training Battalion.
0: I'm really curious about this because now our experiences diverge. So I've explained this before to the audience, but as Marines, we all start in the same exact boot camp. West Coast guys go to MCRD and Camp Pendleton. East Coast guys go to Paris Island and I remember being with infantry guys in my platoon. You all do the same exact basic training, which is kind of cool because you get to interact with everyone, different walks of life, different test scores, all that stuff. Yeah. And then once you move on from boot camp and you go to your um, your A school or your initial training, that's where everything starts to diverge. So, slightly different timelines, but when I went to the, you know, Pogue version of infantry school, a you know, person other than a grunt, uh, they still train us. So, I did three weeks of combat training, whereas Rich was going to the full School of Infantry, which I don't have any experience with. So I'm very interested to hear about how long that was and what the training was like.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember how long it was. Uh, it was mo- obviously more than your uh, MCT. Or- I think it's close to three months, maybe? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty accurate because um, I got to my unit after that training in the fall. So yeah, it lines up pretty good.
0: Okay. And you're going in as an... Whatever the training version of 0311 is, I'm assuming. So, you're going in as like basic rifleman training at SOI or do you get- guess- Everybody is at 0300. Okay.
1: Initially. And there's a certain amount of weeks that you train all the same. Just the basic infantry skills, um, land navigation, probably a lot of the stuff that you did while you're at marine combat training. So, it starts off, everybody's at 0300. You all train together. You do very similar things. Like I said, land navigation, patrolling, laying in a defense, doing claymores, AT4s, like all the real basic, generic, fundamental infantry things. You get tested on a lot of things, like all those those scores that you, you get from different trainings or whatever, PT, all that stuff. You submit what you want to do as far as a specialty. So yeah, there's O311 Infantry Rifleman. And then you also have an O331, which was a heavy machine gunner. Or I should say it's, it's a machine gunner. I shouldn't say heavy because it also uh, trained with medium machine guns as well. So you have your Rifleman, your machine gunner. You have a mortarman, O341 for mortars and direct fire. O351 which is your Assaultman. And it's changed over the the years, but at that time they were focusing in both demolition and also like anti-armor platforms, shoulder fired, like the the light to medium stuff. Okay. And then one more number up, which is 0352, was a tow gunner. And a tow is like a heavy anti-tank missile system. And that's what I was. I became an 0352 tow gunner because it sounded awesome and I was absolutely right it was super awesome
0: yeah so I I saw that your tow gunner stuff and your citations you want to tell us a little more about that job
1: yeah so basically a a tow gunner does a few things our biggest asset for like an infantry battalion or even a tank battalion is to screen for the battalion we're basically like a scout we do reconnaissance we have an anti-tank missile That goes almost four kilometers. Whoa. Yeah, 3,750 meters, I still remember that, is the uh, max effective range for a tow missile. It can basically take out any of the uh, armor platforms at the time, any of the vehicles, whether it's a main battle tank or an infantry fighting vehicle or an infantry transport vehicle, anything. It can even um, take out helicopters and buildings.
0: And this this has to be mounted on a vehicle, or can you like hand like can you walk this thing around too? How big is it?
1: So it weighs over three hundred pounds. If, oh, okay. it's, um, <laughs> if it's mounted on the ground, which you can mount it on the ground, you can put it on a uh, tripod and have your battery system all set up and all that. So you can you can ground mount it. Ideally, though, it's it's best when it's on something that's mobile. That way, you can move around and be a lot more effective with mm-hmm. uh you know maneuver warfare and all that stuff. So. Yeah, they uh, mount it on a Humvee, you know. So you have a gunner up there in the turret of a Humvee with a large missile. We also like to have some type of a machine gun up up there as well, either like a a saw, you know, a light machine gun, or an M two forty golf, which is a medium machine gun. Either one of those to provide uh, suppression or um, just protection for the vehicle. The thing was is um, there wasn't. A mount for machine guns on the Humvee. Really? Yeah. So you have your tow missile system, which is all stock, you know, set up. It's it's mounted on there. You have your plug-in for the vehicle to run off the vehicle's battery, so it can just can be continuous. But as far as a machine gun, you had to basically like strap it down until you're going to use it. So that was something I, th- I thought was kind of odd at first when I went to school of infantry. You know, we're learning about how to fight tanks and all these things, and <laughs> the machine gun is kind of just loose. We're like, wait, what if you're like under fire and you're driving all crazy? Like that? that thing's probably gonna fly off.
0: Is this because the the tow mount takes up so much space that there isn't room to also have a machine gun mount? Like if you didn't have the tow, normally a machine gun would be like mounted. Sometimes it has a shield and stuff too, or am I misremembering that? That
1: that's just the way they made it. Okay, so they could have made it better. And um, we'll talk more about that down the road as far as how we got around that overseas, because we definitely did, and we got very creative. But you know, on top of your turret, you have like a turret cover, I guess, mm-hmm. and so that takes up space as well as your your launch command unit and your actual physical uh, tow missile. The tow missile has two optics on it. Your day sight has like a thirteen powered magnified. Sight with a reticle. And then on top of that, you have a night sight, which runs off of, uh, you know, body heat or heat off of – shows heat signatures off of uh, items and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. those optics are super valuable for an infantry battalion or a tank battalion. That's traditionally what the purpose was to have a tow was to be mobile, to do reconnaissance and scout. And possibly take out armored vehicles if needed. But at the same time, the truck itself was a soft skin Humvee. Oh. So, it didn't offer much protection. They, uh, they told us initially, which is true, that the uh, truck was made of like a Kevlar. Mm-hmm. Which is supposed to slow or stop, um, you know, puncturing. So, it's supposed to like help deflect shrapnel. But as far as a bullet, the bullet's going
0: to go through it like, like Swiss cheese. Right. I remember at the beginning of this Iraq war and Iraqi freedom that that was one of the criticisms and the problems is that a lot of the Humvees out there, when they were hitting mines, roadside bombs, IEDs, they weren't coming out armored. That didn't happen until later, and it was causing a lot of problems at the beginning.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I deployed initially in the beginning stages of 03, and I didn't see myself in a Humvee until up-armored Hun-V until 2004, like midway through my second deployment.
0: That tow setup sounds pretty expensive. Did they actually let you fire one of those in training? No, they did not. (laughs) I figured. They did did not let us
1: fire one. I think one person got to fire like an AT-4 or something, Mm -hmm. which is like a a light rocket. And those aren't that expensive. And you actually throw away the launcher. So, I mean, I, I give credit to the Marine Corps. They know how to save money. Right. The old thing was back in the day, like, oh, every dollar that's spent on the military, like a, a penny is spent for the Marines. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I can agree with that. I can see that. <laughs> but um, the training for Toe was interesting because it went off of lessons learned from the Gulf War. Mm. And so, the biggest thing, you know, with us being like an anti-armored asset was f- to be able to identify friend from foe. Especially if you're at distance or if you're using your night sight. The Gulf War had a – unfortunately, had a big issue with friendly fire. And so, that was like a big thing they really focused on was to be able to identify different armored vehicles and and really be able to distinguish even the model types Mm -hmm. between, you know, one one series of a a vehicle. They probably learned a little bit too much about armored looking back because of of what was going to happen. But at that time, we're looking at, what, 2002? Like, uh, pun intended, but like Iraq Iraq wasn't even on the map yet. We were talking about North Korea. Mm -hmm. We were talking about North Korea. Afghanistan had winded down because, you know, our guys did a great job the year before. And it was like, okay, you know, there's North Korea, maybe. But you're most likely going to get to a unit in, you know, 1st Marine Division or wherever. And most likely do some type of training where you're going to be on a ship and you're going to different countries and training with them and, and kind of traveling the world, which is typical peacetime stuff. Right. You know, if something pops off, the nearest Marine unit can can address the issue. But yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at. So finished up School of Infantry and then they gave us our assignments as far as where we're going. And this is very interesting because, I mean, we're looking back almost 20 years now. Smartphones weren't available. Like even even getting on a computer and like doing research was like kind of rare. And when they said, okay, you're going to 29 Palms, I didn't know where that was at. (laughs) I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what it was about, but it sounded nice. I just remember it sounding nice. Right. Like 29 Palms. Okay, that's not Camp Pendleton, but I bet it's somewhere near the coast. Maybe like a Malibu area or something, you know? Oh, man, that sounds great. The weather's going to be awesome, you know? If it wasn't in the Malibu area, I can go check out Pepperdine, whatever, you know, the school. Yeah, so got on the bus and we started driving east. I'm like, where are we going, you know? So, we left like in the um, afternoon from San Diego to, <laughs> to 29 Palms. And as we started heading east, I mean, it just turns into straight desert. Right. And you got the, the heat rays coming off off the ground in the distance and like, where the hell are we going? And we get there at night and it's kind of confusing because it kind of looks like Mars. And I'm not familiar with it at all. And it's nighttime and we're getting met by, you know, the senior guys in our unit in a parking lot on base. I'm like, this is where I'm going to live for the next four years? What the hell? So that was a, that was another shocker was showing up in basically looks like Mars, but hot, you know? Get there, get all settled in, start training with the the platoon. Yeah, you know, I'm in a tow platoon. Our direction was, hey, we're going to do some pretty standard training. We got some different training exercises that we'll do. You know, mock war in the desert, another urban type thing, at like March Air Force Base or whatever, and get ready to go to Japan for jungle training. It's going to be like a typical, hey, you're going to go to Japan, I think Fiji, Thailand, and Australia – and then come home. Like, oh, cool. It's just like the brochure said. You know? <laughs> they call it a Westpac. That's awesome. I can't wait. Sounds cool. Yeah, man. Growing up watching Predator and, you know, you know Vietnam movies or whatever. And, oh, cool. We get to go train in the jungle. You know, it's not for real. But it will be really cool to like know how to like basically like eat a snake or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, And also go meet some Australian women. Like that was like – that sounded awesome. And I mean, as we all know. We didn't mess with North Korea that time. I didn't go to Japan. Our platoon sergeant from uh, the heavy machine guns of 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines was my unit, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines Weapons Company, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Parker comes out and he just straights up, just lays it on us. He's like, guys, we're going to war. And everybody celebrated because, you know, previous to that, Iraq started picking up with the whole inspectors thing and... Weapons of mass destruction or whatever. We didn't know if we were going to go. We had gotten all our vaccines for Japan. Like I was ready to go, you know? They're like, oh, well, you're going to need some new vaccines because you're not going to Japan anymore or Thailand. You're going to be going to Kuwait to see what happens. And so everybody was excited. But at the same time, I was like, oh, my God, this is for real now. Everybody was excited and nervous. And so we got some like pre-deployment leave where we got to go home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Spent time with the family. And then next thing you know, late January of 2003, we're on a plane. And it's a commercial plane. And we're flying to Kuwait International. We had to stop somewhere in Europe for fuel. But I just remember, we're heading over to Kuwait. And it's just a bunch of Marines with all their gear. Like our rifles are like on the floorboard of this plane. And the staff on this commercial flight is giving us as much food as we wanted, which is rare, and also as much booze as we wanted. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, by the time we get to Kuwait, guys are either like passed out or just straight up drunk. And so, we're like stumbling around to get off the plane, get everybody in line or whatever, and then you have these little mini buses waiting for us. And all the little mini buses have like a brown paper over the windows. And so, <laughs> we get on these these buses and we just start driving north towards Iraq, towards the border. And it's in the middle of the night in Kuwait. And so, I'd had a few, you know, drinks on the plane and I'm passing out. I've getting yelled at by my sergeant to wake the F up because I'm like one of the new guys, you know. Right. And – uh they drive up, I'll never forget it. It's Highway 80. The reason I always remember that is because, you know, being from California, Interstate 80, which I, Roseville, where I'm from, like is off of Interstate 80, it was Highway 80. We drove up Highway 80 and we're in the middle of the desert. They take a, like a left turn off the highway, keep driving off this like dirt road, keep going. We keep going for a while and they stop and we all get out and literally there's nothing there. It's just like an ocean of sand under the moonlight.
2: Whoa.
1: And we're like, okay, what are we doing? Like, yeah, this is your camp. Like, what?
0: <laughs> what, what is this? No buildings, no tents, no nothing?
1: Zero, my friend. Whoa. We were one of the first ones to, to go to Kuwait. 3 seven third Battalion, 7th Marines. It would later be Camp Coyote. And so we get there and we set up a fire watch, which is like a, you know, we have like a guard. One hour shift through the night is continuous for security. And then the next morning, more Marines showed up, but also like workers showed up and they started building tents and bathrooms and all that stuff. So we started getting kind of settled in. And next thing you know, it's like, you had almost the size of a a regiment at this camp, you know, within the next coming weeks. Yeah, it's pretty wild.
0: That's crazy. I had a question for you real quick, because I I think, uh, Certainly, civilian listeners get confused about the nomenclature, you know, 1st First Marine Division, 3rd Battalion Submarines, all that stuff. But honestly, being me having been in the air wing, I'm not that familiar with the ground subdivisions and the logistics as well. So, 1st Marine Division is pretty famous, right? Those are the Raiders, same division that was in Guadalcanal and kind of made famous in World War II. But can you give a very brief breakdown of what all those numbers mean and how that's organized a little bit?
1: Yeah, so you know, you have different levels of structure in a military. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe a Corps is four divisions. And lo and behold, the Marine Corps has four divisions. You have your first Marine Division, which is the West Coast of the United States. Your second Marine Division is the East Coast. Third Marine Division is Hawaii. And then your fourth Marine Division is the Reserve Division. So, those are your divisions. Got it. Okay. So, if we focus on the 1st Marine Division, under a division, you have multiple regiments. You have 1st Marine Regiment. You have 5th Marine Regiment. You have 7th Marine Regiment. Those three regiments fall under 1st Marine Division and they're all stationed on the West Coast in California. It's kind of easy to remember it. Like the the odd numbers are on the West Coast under 1st Marine Division- the even numbers are on the east coast under Second Marine Division, and there's a few like in Third Marine Division that are a little little weird or whatever. But so you yeah, have First Marines, Fifth Marines, Seventh Marines. So if we take it over to Seventh Marines, we are stationed at Twenty Nine Palms, as opposed to the First and the Fifth being stationed at Pendleton. So at Twenty Nine Palms under Seventh Marines, you have four battalions. Now, you have to stay with me here because it might get a little confusing. There's a little bit of an outlier. So, you have your 1st Marine Battalion, 2nd and 3rd in a regiment. So, you have like 1-7 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, 2-7 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, 3-7 and goes like that. There's another regiment that was, which I need to do some research on this, but it was disbanded in Vietnam or prior to that. But 4th Marine... Regiment was broken up, and one battalion from the regiment was sent to each of the other regiments.
0: interesting, okay, yeah, I think what always confuses me about this is that while when you're labeling it like this and you're going in order, so like if a corps is the entire marine corps, then obviously the number of people involved gets you know we're we're looking at something that's narrowing down as we go, so you got corps. And then division in terms of size, yep. and then regiment, yep. battalion. But colloquially, when you guys are like, "Oh, three it's in a different order. It's not necessarily like like you don't say, "Oh yeah, we're First Marine Division, Seventh Marine Regiment, Third Battalion." Like you say it in a different order, and that's I think what is easy to confuse. But anyways, that that was definitely helpful. <laughs> like
1: a little way to remember too. It's like uh, think of of Third Battalion of Seventh Marines. Or also, the way we write it is like a three slash seven. It's a part mm-hmm. of a whole. So, if you think of like a fraction, right. you know, three or whatever. So, yeah, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. So, you have Corps, Division, Regiment, Battalion. And then a battalion is broken up into companies. And so, companies can have, you know, anywhere between, I don't know, 120 to like almost 200, 200 plus Marines. And then within a company, you have your platoons. Right. In a platoon, you have a squad or a section, depends on how you're set up. And then fire teams.
0: Right. That's when it starts to get a little more tangible because we're talking about three people, eleven be- you know, people that you would actually deal with. Yep. Okay, that's helpful. And I I notice in your title, so for example, if we look at two thousand three, we're talking so you were a tow gunner in tow platoon, weapons company, third battalion, seventh Marine Regiment, RCT or Regimental Combat Team Seven, First Marine Division where's the RCT fit into that?
1: So a regimental combat team is an organization that was made for the war at that moment in time. Okay. So it might be, you know, battalions from other regiments or it's just hey, you know, out of out of uh, 7th Marines, we have two battalions here and we have some admin with that. That's going to be like a a unit basically. It's a
0: little unique. Okay, it's like custom making a team that you need for a specific task or a specific tactical use that you kind of kind of pull from wherever you need as as like a commander.
1: Yeah, exactly because I, th- I think that um, you know not every uh, battalion deployed at the time, so you have one back in the states. I know there was a unit uh, battalion that was in Okinawa during the invasion of Iraq, and typically your deployment is supposed to be six months. Um, When you do that Westpac, and that's including Japan and all those other places that we talked about before finishing in Australia, they ended up staying there for almost a year. They did like actually two cycles instead of your typical one in Japan. So things got, you know, a little hasty, I guess, a little unique for the situation to make it fit.
0: And in the context of the infantry what is a weapons company? Because to me, it's like all you guys have jobs where you specialize in weapons. What does weapons company mean to you?
1: Yeah, so when we talk about weapons company, you're talking about heavier platforms. Ah. In in a battalion, you'll have rifle companies, which is your you're probably your typical, what you're thinking of when you think of Marines, of guys walking around with rifles, right? You have those traditional companies. Then you have your weapons company in that battalion and now you'll have platoons designated again traditionally by the job or by the weapons platform. So, for me, when I got the 3-7, I was in a tow platoon. We all had the same job. We all focused mm-hmm. on the tow platform and everything tow. There was a heavy machine guns platoon. There was a javelins platoon. Those guys that were assault men, the heavy platform that they could use is a Javelin, which is a little bit smaller than a toe. It's very uh, mobile, but it packs a hard punch for armor. It's a missile.
0: Right. And then you also had mortars as well. Okay, that makes sense. So the more the more specialized weapons beyond, obviously everyone's armed. Everyone has an M16 with a 203 or yeah. somebody has a 203. Usually that's a squad leader, right? But Yeah,
1: you have a Grenadier. Yeah. And as you'll see, as we talk a little bit, we're pretty flexible. And that's kind of a a big thing for the Marine Corps is to be able to to change on the fly and adapt. You might get platoons that mix job specialties. You might get uh, a scout sniper platoon being moved from headquarters and service to weapons company. Just whatever makes the most sense at that time is what we're going to do. We're not fixed on a certain structure. Mm -hmm. We're trying to stay as fluid as possible to be effective.
0: Because you guys also mix. It. I know we'll get into this because you had some personal experience with this, but you guys also mix in to support special forces unit, like Marine Corps Force Recon. Are for the layman out there, it's kind of like the Navy SEALs of the Marine Corps, right? Like they're the actual special forces that go to all the um, special operator schools and all that. But they're smaller units, right? So they need support from uh, I don't want to say regular infantry, but kind of the bigger the bigger group of infantry, right?
1: Yeah. So, they, they can get attached to a battalion as like a support and then they can go do their thing, you know, their special missions or whatever and we can mm-hmm. support them with, you know, if they need mortars, hey, we're right there. If right. they need a quick reaction force, a QRF, you know, we can respond, you know, with firepower to resupply them, to extract them if they're needed to go, all those things. They they train typically within their organic unit, but when it comes to operations, those guys get attached out to different things.
0: Right. Cuz they don't have the volume to have a whole company of special operators. They're going to be a smaller team, but then you guys are going to fill in the rest and yep, help do all that stuff. So, you guys are set up at what then became Camp Coyote, and this is we're talking March of 03 ish, February.
1: February, and then yeah, in the March just training, you know, as much as possible. Luckily, our platoon sergeant Gunny Sergeant Sandor Vey, super religious guy. If you ever said the uh, guy, you know, D word or whatever, he'd get very upset, but you were cursing his father. Oh, wow. Cool thing about Gunny Vey, which he promoted later, but it was historically Gunny. He was in the first Gulf War Mm. and he was also a sniper and he served with Anthony Swafford, who is the main character in Jarhead. It's kind of a small world because Swafford is from Sacramento and that's where I'm like from, from Roosevelt. It's just north of there. Anyway, Gunny Vay, super cool guy, had high standards, but definitely took into account troop welfare. There's two things we focus on as Marines. Mission accomplishment is always number one, but number two is troop welfare and he lived that. So, you know, he would tell the officers or whatever. Hey, we're going to go out and drive. We're going to do some driving, some maneuvers and this and that. I said, so, okay, yeah, we're going to go drive. And he's like, all right, yeah, keep going. Uh, head over to Highway 80. Yeah, go south. Yeah, keep going. We're going to go to Camp Doha. We're like, what the hell are we doing at Camp Doha in Kuwait? And we were going there to get phone calls and to get good food. They had like a Hardee's there, <laughs> which people on the West Coast, that's Carl's Jr. Baskin Robbins and like a store and all this stuff. And like, we didn't have to do that, you know? we could have just went out there and just trained like he uh, told the higher ups or whatever but we actually went and were able to have some some downtime and call home because we didn't have phones really set up at the uh, the coyote because it was just so rudimentary out there to be able to go down to Doha and you know feed you know stuff our faces with fat food and <laughs> you know spend uh 30 bucks on a 5 minute phone call or whatever it was made all the difference And we did did definitely get uh, good training there, but there's only so much you can do with that amount of time. I mean, we're sitting there just waiting to find out what we're going to do. We're extremely close to the Kuwaiti-Iraqi border. The UN had built a big berm along the border, and we'd go running out there, like as a battalion. We'd go running along the border just because uh, my company commander at the time just had a huge set of, you know what, And he was a combat vet. And he was a prior enlisted guy too. Dan Schmidt is a very good guy. Very small guy too. But he challenged anybody to wrestle him. Like that's the type of captain he was. He was a super small guy, but he just loved to grapple and loved to do things like that. So yeah. I mean, we trained. We're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Like, are Scud's going to fall? Are we going to invade? Is Saddam going to give up? What's he going to do? We're just just waiting in the desert, waiting for things to happen.
0: Yeah, so... Fast forward a little bit, you guys are training and having morale taken care of and always, I imagine, ready to go at, at the drop of a hat. So eventually, the orders start coming down and Operation Iraqi Freedom starts and we actually start moving into Iraq, which once you actually went in, we're talking combined Marine sailor soldiers, as combined forces, 6,000 vehicles, 22,000 plus just Marines without counting the rest of them. Yeah. Kuwait's to the south of Iraq. So, you guys started up, I'm assuming, heading towards Baghdad initially?
1: Yeah. So, the initial word or plan was to go up on the eastern side of the movement. So, like, yeah, the army, which the army was supposed to be the main effort. The army was supposed to go from Kuwait up and around to the west, like, skirting around the cities. And then hitting Baghdad. We weren't even supposed to go into Baghdad. The Marines weren't. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to um, go along the cities along the Tigris River. The army was supposed to go like the Euphrates. It was supposed to be like a pincer movement where you get uh, two large forces coming in on one target from opposing sides. Mm -hmm. But the army was supposed to take Baghdad. And so, yeah, we get word and like we had bailed up stockpiles of junk food uh, while we're (laughs) getting fat in Kuwait. And um, all that stuff had to get thrown away. And next thing you know, we're on the border and there's an air campaign going on. Shout out to all the air traffic controllers out there that were launching those birds and doing those runs. There was a lot of air power and a lot of ordnance being dropped on military targets for about a day or two. And then we got the uh, green light to cross the border, which was kind of interesting because as we're getting closer to the border off of Highway 80... We pass a, um, a Kuwaiti army outpost and I'm checking out their gear because they buy a lot of stuff from us mm-hmm. and they have a Humvee and they have like a tow system. They had better stuff than we did. <laughs> it was like super nice but nevertheless, we're fearing of nuclear biological chemical attack the whole time that we're going up to Baghdad and so, we're not wearing our typical uniforms. You know, our our fatigues. We're wearing like what's called a mop suit. And don't ask me what that stands for. It's basically to protect you from any type of uh, nuclear biological chemical allegedly attack. And so, we're wearing these like green, they kind of look like firefighter pants with like the uh, uh, suspenders. Mm -hmm. So, you have that and then you have like, like a parka jacket that you wear. You know, you got your vest over that and your
0: helmet. Not exactly uh, warm weather
1: clothing. No. (laughs) And luckily, there's different levels of MOP, M-O-P-P. There's different levels. And um, (laughs) the Marines are great at having you remember things via acronyms. So, MOP 1 was your suit. MOP 2 was boots. MOP 3 was mask. And MOP 4 was gloves. So, the acronym to remember those, Susie Blows Me Good. <laughs> I don't know if that still flies in, in modern times, but back in 2003, like that was a thing. And honestly, it, was, it made everybody remember it. So. It worked, right? Yeah, it's effective. No hard feelings for anybody. So, yeah. So, we're wearing our mop suits. Every truck, every Humvee has three guys in it except for my truck. My truck, it's just me and my buddy Edgar Esquivel from L.A., He was like the top Marine out of his um, class. Like they were brought to the unit about six months before my group got there. And so I was a top guy and mine, we're both like, I think we're both Lance Corporals. He might've been a PFC when he first got there, but we were both Lance Corporals and we're paired up together because of just the numbers that we had. Hey, we're two, two new guys, two young guys, but we seem to be pretty squared away. The only thing that really sucked about that, was when they're like, okay, you need to have one guy up. And so, a lot of guys had a three-man rotation. We had a two. Oof. So, the sleep thing
0: was horrible. Wait, so two people in your entire Humvee, in your tow vehicle? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So, we had a driver and a gunner. And
0: and you guys just have to switch? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, no one's really sleeping.
1: <laughs> no. Uh, typically, uh, you'd have three. So, you have a person in like the front passenger seat, and they're the vehicle commander- So, they're the ones like monitoring to the the map and the radio and talking on the radio where we had to like split that between us. And every once in a while, we get like an extra person like if snipers joined us or javelins joined us. But for the most part, it was just us two. Crossing the border, that was like the oh shit moment. Like this is real. And so, I took a picture of myself back uh, when this happened. (laughs) This is back when we had like those disposable cameras, those Kodak Mm -hmm, cameras. mm Mm-hmm. I took a, a photo of myself uh, blowing a bubble, like with my bubble gum. Mm-hmm. And I remember that because I'm like, oh, I'm I'm cool and calm. No, I wasn't. In my head, I'm like, oh my God, this is for real. You know, some of the guys that had been to Somalia um, were like, oh yeah, they used to uh, try to put like piano wire or some type of wire across an alleyway to try to decapitate the gunner as the Americans were driving through. Oof. So, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, dude, I'm like six seven. They're totally going to get me if I stand up. Right. You know? Oh, but to go back to um, what we're talking about with the tow vehicle not having a machine gun mount. Mm -hmm. So, to back up a little bit, when we were in Kuwait, when we went down to Doha one time, we're actually able to find a machinist. Oh, cool. One of our section leaders actually had like drawn up a plan for a mount and they just made it happen. They built it and they put it on every vehicle. It was steel, bolted down. It even had like a, a thing for ammo. And yeah, we were like the only unit, I swear, to do that.
0: Adapt and overcome, huh?
1: Yeah. I watch uh, Every once in a while, I watch like a documentary on 03 with the Marines. And if it's not a 3-7 weapons company, they don't have a mount on it. Wow. We're the only ones that had it. But it was super awesome. It was super sturdy. You could mount your medium machine gun up there with like 200 rounds of ammo and rock and roll. That was extremely valuable because- I didn't fire one tow missile in my first deployment, but I fired thousands of rounds out of a machine gun. So it was super valuable.
0: You want to get into what you got your NAM for. That NAM is a Navy Achievement Medal for everybody listening. So this is kind of your first big award. This also led to your Purple Heart. And I'm assuming this is kind of your first sort of big action, or did you have some combat experiences before that in 03?
1: So like in the first couple of days, we got into an engagement, uh, a little firefight.
0: And to paint the picture, are you guys still mostly sort of traveling on highways in the desert? Are you getting into towns and more urban streets and stuff, or is it mostly out in the open? All the above. Okay.
1: Yeah, we're covering a lot of ground, um, a lot of night movement, and the first enemy engagement I got into was like in almost like a farm, like rural area, like a hinterland of a city. I remember the fire starts, you just start hearing cracks over your head. And you're looking around like, okay, where is that coming from? Daytime, moving around, get shot at, stuff's cracking overhead, and I, I just start shooting in a, in a direction. So this is your first time getting shot at? Yes. Heart's racing. Luckily, we, we have a couple combat vets from like 10 plus years ago in our unit, so they have a little bit of experience. But even like my senior guys in, in the platoon, the corporals and sergeants, like nobody had ever been in combat. So this was a first. You know, we take positions behind um, a little bit of a berm, and we kind of identify the area that it's coming from. We're just laying down on it, and I'm just going nuts on the 240 golf. I'm just like laying, hey, you know, shooting a lot of rounds, and then Escabel's like, "What are you shooting at?" And I'm like, "I don't know," <laughs> and i look like looking around and like nobody else is shooting. I'm like, "Oh, maybe I should, maybe I should stop." <laughs> and I'll never forget our sergeant major, who was a former recon guy, is like. Ice man. He's like super cool, calm and collected. He's like peeking over the top of the berm and like peeking down and kind of looking around. And then I look and our battalion commander was also with us. He's an officer. He went to college or whatever. And he's like damn near under a Humvee like taking cover. <laughs> I will never forget that. That was so awesome. It was funny too because like this battalion commander was always like acting like he was such a, a badass, you know? all these speeches he would give and all this stuff. He's kind of an arrogant guy. And then seeing the guy who never yelled, just like operator, man, you know, just cool, calm, just kind of scanning. Okay, what were we do next? I'm like, that guy's badass. So yeah, legs were shaking during that time. Ton of adrenaline. After the smoke cleared or whatever, we just moved on. And I remember specifically, and this happened after, you know, many times afterwards of getting in a situation like that. Your adrenaline goes, 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 and then it drops when you're done. Once you feel like you're safe, it's like a dump, like an ad- adrenaline dump. Mm-hmm. You get super tired, you get super thirsty, and you get super hungry. Interesting. You have to like replenish everything, and so we'd have those every once in a while moving up towards Baghdad. But again, we weren't supposed to take Baghdad. Our army was going to handle it. They were kind of they were hitting some cities, I think, but trying to go around basically cut the head off the snake and then we're working on that, that body along the Tigris river. And so, you know, we're, we're driving, we're driving nighttime, daytime, try to get some sleep, all these things. The army was providing our logistics for us. So they would try to resupply us with fuel, water, ammo, food, all the, all the major things. Actually, uh, we're moving through a, a town one time. I can't remember the name of it, but I had driven a little too wide on an intersection And gotten stuck. Like my Humvee got stuck. And so we're in this like town. There's a bunch of people around us. We don't know if they're enemy or not. And my vehicle's not moving. And so I'm getting yelled at by the sergeant now. We got other guys out there trying to dig it out. And he's like in my ear the whole time. And I'm like, oh man, what did I do? Finally we get out, continue north. And yeah, man, it was just like hit or miss. Going through towns or whatever. Some people are very, very excited. To see us, and some people weren't. Oh, another fun fact: while we were invading this country, we saw a ton of pilgrims. There, there were a lot of people on a pilgrimage towards Karbala, which Karbala is a very uh, holy city for Shia Muslims, mm-hmm. and they weren't able to do this annual pilgrimage during Saddam's last, like the last 20 plus years, he, he wouldn't allow it, and so they weren't able to, like you know, carry out their religious rites. And uh, it wasn't just Iraqi. You get a lot a lot of people from Iran and other countries trying to go to Karbala. And so while we were pushing up, he had a lot of people on foot just walking. Wow. Miles, miles, miles away from Karbala just trying to get there to to be a part of that religious ceremony. And so we were getting a little frustrated on the way up because, honestly, the Marine Corps thing was to kill people and blow shit up. And a lot of people had surrendered. And a lot of things that we wanted to blow up were already blown up because of the air campaign. They stole our targets. So we're getting like <laughs> frustrated about that. The helicopters and the tanks were taking out armored vehicles and we're like, we want to you know, put a toe in that. We want to get in a fight. And we're just getting so so frustrated. And so we get to the outskirts of Baghdad. This is about about two weeks into it and we had to stop. The army had not caught up. Oh, wow. The army was about almost a week out from getting to Baghdad, which was crazy. We're like, what the hell? Like you guys are supposed to take Baghdad. We're supposed to take the other cities and then that's it. And here we are. We're sitting outside of Baghdad for about five days. We're out there just out in the middle of of the desert, just outside the city. And we were running low on everything. We're low on ammo, food, water, fuel, batteries and everything. So we had to like conserve. We're down to like one meal a day and one bottle of water a day. Wow. And super low on fuel. And so, a lot of my army friends out there that try to give me shit about being, you know, in the Marines or whatever. I'm like, hey, dude, were you there on that first tour? Because we could talk a lot about that as well as other things. <laughs> That's only if they talk, you know, talk first. I, I, uh, I actually have a lot of respect for military across the board, job specialties, whatever, you know. But when they try to get cheeky with me, I'm like, hey, I'm going to slam you, dude. Come on. So, we're there for five days waiting army shows up on the western side of town we're on the eastern side of town and i remember like they couldn't get in because there was a a bridge that was blown out and so a marine engineer unit went over there and built a bridge for them and they were able to get across and we all went in so that was um i want to say about april 8th april 9th timeframe, 2003 and then we're taking Baghdad. We're driving around get you know, strong point areas and other units are coming up. We're kind of leapfrogging. We're no longer wearing the mop gear. We changed right before we went to the city to our regular camis or fatigues. And 3-7 was one of the first Marine units in the city. One of the first ones into Iraq and one of the first ones into Baghdad. But again, there was even more frustration because those other cities in between, a lot of times we weren't the first ones in and we're like, we're supposed to be the tip of the spear. We're always told, mm-hmm. and now we're not. So we found ourselves in Baghdad,
0: and the army's caught up at this point. So they're like on the other side of the city.
1: Yeah, so they're they they're in the city now on the west side. We're on the east side. Okay, and there were more enemy engagements. We were on one area where cars were were coming at us, and we're you know had like signs up telling them to stop or whatever, and just kept coming. So we start shooting. Did that a few times, and there are intel reports about suicide uh, vehicles. Well, that's why we're so cautious because we had all these these reports. You know, like Al Qaeda might be trying to get involved in this conflict and whatnot.
0: And you're in an urban area, so this is a mix of military vehicles are not really around at this point. But I'm assuming it's just it's hard to identify who's a civilian, who's a combatant, who's in uniform, who's not. I imagine a lot of people are not in uniform.
1: Yeah, so there there were a few like. Uh, Loyalist, I would call them, that like fought to the death Mm -hmm. in their uniform and that whole thing. You know, it's like their, their, their dying wishes or whatever.
0: Army regulars.
1: Regulars, yeah, yeah. But we started hearing about guerrilla style fighting. They're not wearing uniforms. They're not driving military vehicles or whatever. So we had to be very cautious. Everybody was a threat.
0: And what are civilians doing in general, bigger picture here? Like have people fled the city? Are they still trying to live in the city? Are they just trying to let the American, like what's the civilian population doing as a whole?
1: So at that point in time, when we first got there, there were people out in some areas and others not. I was actually surprised of how well received we were. People coming up and like kissing us on the cheek, you know, like. There were fathers, like, they wanted to marry their daughters off to us giving us flowers and all this stuff. And it's like, right. whoa. You know, you hear all the things about Saddam and his rule, and then to actually be in that country and seeing how some people were elated that we were there, and then there's other people that were extremely pissed off. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I feel like the people that were pissed off outwardly were the people that probably, um, you know, had some advantages to living under Saddam's system.
0: They had more to lose, yeah.
1: Yeah, Exactly. So, they might have been a, a bath party member, you know, working for the government or whatever. So, fast forward, I think that was the eighth, the ninth were tasked to conduct a roadblock, basically, set up security for a logistics convoy to move throughout the city. Very urban, so like on a freeway. Just think of like a, you're inside of a, your typical city on a freeway. And you have a couple like off ramps down the road, you know, they probably like a three lane, uh, freeway on both sides or whatever. And so we have this major highway, highway six blocked off and nobody is allowed to pass. And I'm in the, the turret with a two forty golf medium machine gun, you know, providing security or whatever. And Esquivel is, is eating his lunch and he's like, Hey, you want to switch out? I'm like, yeah, we can do it in a little bit. No big deal. And, uh, we have a sign up in Arabic, big red sign in Arabic saying, do not cross, danger, Marines, all this stuff. And this small car is like driving towards us and it's like beelining like right at us. And it's not slowing down. It's getting closer. And my truck, my Humvee was like the, the one that's in the very front of everybody. So I'm like the, the first the first gun, if you will. Getting super close, super close. And I'm like, nope. Hold down the trigger. And like light this vehicle up. And it got super close to mine. It was probably like 30 feet away. And when it like screeched to a halt. And I'm like shooting, shooting, shooting. You know, machine gun fire all over this car. And then I stop. It's just like silence. You just see like dust coming off the car. Broken glass. You know, smoke coming off my barrel. And the other Marines are like kind of holding back a little bit. The guys on the ground. And then you see doors open up and like hands, hands are coming out, you know. And So they go up there and search the car and get the guys out and start giving them medical aid. And I was, again, I'm going to use this word, disappointed at the time because I hadn't shot like really any of them. When I started shooting. They ducked down. And they got a, some, some wounds, whatever, but I didn't like nail any of them. But I just destroyed that car. And so this corporal that was with us, he was attached to us from the sniper platoon. I was still a very young Marine at the time. He starts this go like, you know, ripping me a, a new one. Those guys were gonna stop. Why didn't you? Why did you shoot at them? You know, this and that. And it kind of messed with my head a little bit. Because first I'm like, they weren't gonna stop. Then I was like, well, this guy might know better than I do because he's been around longer. Like, mm-hmm. were they gonna stop? Did I shoot that car unnecessarily? It kind of messed with my head a little bit. But then they actually searched the car, and that car had just looted a bank. So I felt less bad. Wow. Yeah, so I felt less bad about that.
0: And what was what was your uh, – because I know this changes depending on the theater and the situation. But your ROE, your rules of engagement, what were your instructions from above? Like were you guys told at all to fire warning shots first or was it just kind of like your judgment as to what you were going to do? Like you're, you're getting criticized by this other corporal. Yeah. But in terms of what you were supposed to be doing, like what, what did you know when the situation came – it happened?
1: Yeah, so even at that time, like I knew that that was, that was his opinion, mm-hmm. but I still valued it because sure. he'd been around more. I didn't feel like I wasn't uh, justified in using that type of uh, force to address that threat. Mm-hmm. And the rules of engagement were pretty, pretty loose at the time. If we identified a threat, a positive threat, you know, we can engage that threat.
2: Okay. This
1: is uh, very conventional. It's not like nation building or peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. This is conventional to basically go in and remove a government. Right. Even at the time, it wasn't called Operation Iraqi Freedom. We just knew it as the Iraq War. It had nothing to do with liberating a people. It was about going in there, ending the threat of Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction. That was the the threat. That's why we're there. We weren't there to make friends with the people. Mm -hmm. So after shooting that vehicle and and those guys were dealt with or whatever – giving medical aid and taking, I don't know where. We moved forward a little bit to get in front of that car and set up. And so I was eating my MRE and Esquivel is like, hey man, you about, you about done? I was like, oh uh, yeah, just a little bit. I'm like, yeah, there's like a uh, a truck like way down the road that's coming. If he pulls off on that off ramp, like half mile down the road, we can swap out. And so I'm like watching, watching this truck and it's kind of moving slow. I'm like, okay, what's he going to do? And it looks like he's like driving towards the off ramp, you know, about a half mile. I'm like, all right, cool. He's just going to turn off. He probably sees our sign or whatever. And, but then he pulls back into like the center lane. And then I start hearing the engine pick up with the power. You know, he's accelerating. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So this truck is like a, uh, it's like a moving truck, like a box truck, but like a larger one. Three ton, five ton, somewhere in between there. It was just, it was bigger than your your typical like U haul, like a, a large, a larger one with a flat front. I think that like, Mercedes makes them or something. This thing is uh is driving towards us, and this time I'm like a little bit more hesitant because I'm thinking about what that corporal said to me before. So I'm like, okay, I'm aiming in, but what this guy, what's this guy gonna do? And that corporal that had yeah you know, yelled at me before he's off to my left like I'm in the turret like on top of the the truck or the humvee. Mm-hmm. he's on the ground in the prone position with his sniper rifle.
0: and you have just iron sights on this machine gun? do you have a scope like do you have any magnification?
1: No, just iron sights, but uh the truck is is driving faster and it's getting closer and it's getting closer and it's like, okay, well, okay, what the hell And the sniper fires a warning shot It keeps coming. I'm like, oh, shit. So, once I realized that the guy's not stopping, uh, he's probably like maybe like 60, 70 yards away, I start shooting with the machine gun and I, I just held down the trigger the whole time and the guy didn't stop and he ended up ramming my Humvee, which is a lot smaller of a vehicle mm-hmm. than his you know, five-ton or whatever, and just destroyed... My vehicle and my level of consciousness at the time. So smashes into my vehicle and immediately I just get knocked out. Right before I get hit, I stop shooting and I grab the the buttstock of the machine gun with my right hand. My left hand grabs the, the turret to brace myself. And then I wake up and I'm like a human pretzel inside my Humvee. I'm pinned between the uh, radio and the radio mount in front of my shins. And then behind me are tow missiles, which weigh about 60 pounds a piece. And we have them loose to be able to pull them out fast. Those all got slammed forward. So my my legs are just like crushed. And so, you know, I wake up, whatever, I'm like a pretzel, and the guys are yelling at me, trying to pull me out from the sides, can't get pull me out. And they're like, hey, you got to try to pick yourself up and slide out the back of the, the top of the Humvee. So, I'm like, all right, all right. So, I uh, do like a, a dip, you know, you push up with your arms and then this, I roll off the back and then I'm like in and out of consciousness as um, two guys have each arm and they're carrying me to an ambulance. So, I wake up in the ambulance as we're driving, not knowing where I'm at or anything or what happened and I just have like six guys looking over me as we're driving. And I'm like looking around like, what the what is going on? And I kind of like, you know, I'm laying on my back. So I kind of like lift my head up and I see the palm trees as we're driving. This palm trees passing. And they're like, Hey, uh, do you know where you're at? And I'm like, uh, somewhere nice. <laughs> they're like, no, you're in Baghdad. And I'm like, Oh fuck. And they're like holding up the fingers and I'm doing that right. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't remember this until the corpsman told me this like a couple of years later. He's like, yeah, I asked you what your name was and you said you were Batman. <laughs> And I'm like, what? That's
2: hilarious.
1: which I don't, I don't know why I said that. I should have said I'm the Punisher because that was my favorite Marvel character. But for some reason, I said Batman. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm in the ambulance and they're asking me like what hurts, whatever. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, my neck and my back and my knees, like all everything was just like hurting my hands, you know. And uh, they're looking at my neck. They're like, oh, you got burnt pretty bad on your neck. They're like looking, looking. They're like, hey, what about your, uh, below your belt line? There's a bunch of red down there. I'm like, I don't know. So they like cut to see if I was like bleeding or anything. They're like, yeah, we can't find out where this red stuff's coming from. And I'm like, oh, I was, uh, eating some strawberry, uh, jelly with a cracker and it was like on the turret. So that might have like, might have fell on me. So yeah, red strawberry jelly. They thought that was blood. Um, <laughs> uh, I had some like cuts and scrapes or whatever, but, I would later find out that I fractured a a vertebrae in my back, wedged another one, had whiplash, got knocked out, suffered a traumatic brain injury.
0: So, you had a fractured vertebrae, but you were able to function and just kind of over time it healed or did you ever have to like get surgery or get that more worked on?
1: So, I didn't know it was fractured at the time. I just, my back was hurting, which was weird because like all the guys already had back pain anyway. Because of all the stuff we were wearing, that I just felt like, yeah, I just jacked my back up and it was whatever, you know. So, I just dealt with it and I suffered a uh, second degree slash third degree burn on my neck. So, they took me to where our battalion headquarters was, which was at the uh, Baghdad Olympic Stadium. Saddam Hussein thought that the Olympics were going to happen in Iraq at some point. And so, he built a stadium. So, we ended up making that our, our base temporarily. So, go to the battalion aid station where all the corpsmen were. They monitored me overnight. I was like next to two other guys that had been wounded. I think one guy had shrapnel, the other guy had been shot. And um, next morning, I go out, talk to the uh, chief corpsman. He's like, all right. He's like, the major thing I see right now is the burn on your neck. He's like, um, do you want it to scar or do you want us to like take care of it? I'm like, yeah, just take care of it. And I don't know how bad it is or whatever. So, I remember like he sprayed some stuff on it and then he like rubbed it with like a uh, – almost like a dobe pad. It was like a rough like pad and it hurt like a son of a bitch. But he told me he's like the reason that you do that is you um, you can prevent scarring by kind of smoothing everything out and then keeping it clean and everything. And looking back on it, I was like, man, I should just let him uh, leave it alone. That would been a cool scar to have. <laughs> but um, yeah, for like a year after that, like every time I shaved, it would get super red Whatever time it went away.
0: And this was from you coming in contact with hot parts of your machine gun, I'm assuming, or what was it?
1: Yeah. So I had fired, I don't know how many rounds uh, continuously. And so, as you know, machine gun barrels get hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, any gun gets hot if you shoot a lot at it, but a machine gun barrel, I mean, we actually carry extra barrels to prevent our gun from seizing because it gets so hot and the heat expands the metal. So it got so hot that when I uh, braced for impact and got hit, I got thrusted forward, and the side of my neck touched the barrel, and it, like took a piece of a layer of skin off my neck, and was on that barrel for I don't know how how much longer. I think it made it to my second deployment. To be honest, <laughs> it ended up turning like green and was like cooked on there. So yeah, he cleaned up the wound or whatever. <laughs> my uh, My trousers were all cut up, so I looked like a like a pirate, <laughs> and I like, was able to walk out and look at my vehicle. And it was just destroyed. That thing was just done. And um, I didn't have an M16. I had my 9mm pistol and my two forty Golf, which was the machine gun. And then I would borrow Esquivel's rifle when I was the driver and he was the gunner. But I was – majority of the time, I was the gunner and uh, he was the, uh, the driver. But uh, we've definitely both got our fair share. But he was just getting pissed off because – Anytime we got into an engagement, he was the driver, I was the gunner. (laughs) So, like, he wasn't getting his glory or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I'm looking at this vehicle that's destroyed. I'm looking like a pirate. And they ended up having to um, put us into different vehicles because that vehicle's destroyed. We don't have an extra one just laying around. So, I got put into um, another team that had three guys, which was super nice because we're actually able to, like, get some sleep. So I went from having two guys, just myself and Edgar, to having four, including myself. And for a couple days, I mean, I was out that next day with the guys. I was able to snag a um, AK-47 and rock that. Nice. Yeah, because we were just picking stuff up on the way up to Baghdad. Like we were just things were abandoned, or we pull them off of guys that we had fought and killed or whatever. And we had like every vehicle had a freaking stockpile, a cache of. Soviet-made small arms, RPGs, PKMs, RPKs, PKCs, all the different types of Soviet machine guns and AK-47s. And so I got to rock that.
0: You guys must have loved that because you don't get to practice any of that stuff in the Marine Corps.
1: Oh, yeah. Then they made us turn it all in. Sure. We're thinking like, oh, this is awesome. These are war trophies. We're going to be able to take them home. Yeah. No, not <laughs> the case. So I, I was able to get issued a rifle and we chilled in, um, in Baghdad for, I don't know, maybe a few more weeks, the whole mission accomplishment thing happened by President Bush, and we would go out on missions to go do whatever, drive around. Hey, you're going to do like a vehicle checkpoint or something, and there's nobody driving around at night. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember there's one night we went out in Baghdad. We're on this intersection. There's like nobody out. With the exception of like a, a handful of guys, Iraqi guys, at this little like kind of like a coffee shop or like a restaurant or something. And it's super boring. Nothing's going on. And then one of the guys, the Iraqi guys, comes up to us and he's like, um, you know, he speaks like a little bit of English. But we're, we're translating, trying to. Are you guys hungry? And we're like, uh, yeah, we've been eating out of a bag for, you know, a month so, they come out and they bring us food. They bring us like rice and d- some meats and stuff like that, some flatbread. And uh, he comes back out. He's like, uh, whiskey. And we're like looking at each other like, uh, should we? <laughs> and we're like looking at our sergeant. Our sergeant was like very down to earth, very cool. He's like, yeah, man, let's do it. They so brought us whiskey and we all drank and got drunk. And next thing I know, like one of the biggest Iraqis you have ever seen – He's like probably six foot eight, probably 300 pounds. Has his arm around me just like, <laughs> oh, I'm Ricky, I'm Ricky. You know, Americans, whatever. We were just out there just partying with these guys. And uh, we come in the next day, you know, in the morning. And our uh, our commander's like, how did it go out there? You know, was there anything going on? We're like, nah, that's pretty boring.
0: Yeah, you're not telling them that story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nah, so mission accomplished, all that, you know, from... From uh from Baghdad, whatever. We're like, cool, man. Let's wrap this thing up and go home. So we left Baghdad, went out to the middle of the desert for about a week, which was awesome because that's when we started getting our mail that had been sent during the invasion. And so we're getting all this mail. We're getting all these goodies, you know, all these cookies and candy mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And uh, me and my uh, real good buddy – Jan Hulk set up a cami net which is like uh, this thing that provides shade it's supposed to provide concealment for ground units from any enemy aircraft but you can use it for shade and we're just sitting there we're eating like I don't know Twizzlers and Oreos and all this stuff we're listening to 311 which is like a big band from both of our our likings or whatever we love 311 and we're just chilling man we're in the shade we're reading letters we're eating candy and Oreos and all that, and we're listening to some good music. It was perfect. We did that for almost a week until we got assigned to relieve an army unit out of Karbala. We are going to do a switch. They were going to come up to Baghdad. We were going to go to Karbala. So we switched, went down to Karbala, and we are there for, gosh, from... The end of April until September. And it was weird because at that time, like there wasn't much going on even throughout the country. It was very non-eventful, not a whole lot of enemy activity. There was some very sporadic, Mm -hmm. but our missions were like, hey, today we're going to drive over to the police station. We're going to have lunch with They're police guys or whatever, their chief and their captains or whatever. We're going to go play soccer with some kids. We're going to go buy some stuff from the market and then we're going to come back. Those were our missions. It was all like PR stuff. Mm -hmm. And like I said, there was nothing really going on. The only um, enemy fire that we would see would be tracer rounds going up in the the sky. And We're like, what is that all about? There's no enemy like anti-aircraft, whatever. We're like oh those are for weddings, like mm. weddings in Iraq, they'll they'll shoot a bunch of uh, rounds in the air, and you're seeing tracers. So General Mattis would uh, would come visit us. He was the first Marine Division General at the time, the commander. Mm-hmm. He'd come and give speeches, and it was always, uh, you guys are doing a great job. You guys are making history. I don't know when you guys are going home, but I will let you know as soon as I know. <laughs> You know, every couple of weeks, he'd come and tell us that. And so, we're like, damn, what is going on? I had a girlfriend back home, which was the one I talked about earlier from high school. And again, we started writing each other again, right? Oh, I can't wait till you come home, you know, this and that. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait till I come home too. I can't wait to see you. And she had joined a church. She became Mormon. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was—I even told her, I was like, oh, you know, I'm interested in learning what that's all about. Like, I, I probably won't join, but, you know, at least I'll understand where you're coming from and I respect it and this and that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, okay. So, she sent me uh, the Book of Mormon and I started reading it. So, I'm like, oh, this would be good to read. And so, all of a sudden, I get a Dear John letter. Ooh. Yeah. Dear John later, telling, hey, I thought we were just going to be friends. I'm like, that's not what I have records of. <laughs> I got receipts. <laughs> I met this guy. He's really nice. You know, we're, gonna, we're together now and we can't, whatever. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, this is my first love at the time, the love of my mm. life. And she was just killing me, you know. I don't mean to upset anybody listening to this, this podcast, but I took that Book of Mormon and I threw it in the burn pile.
0: I was just going to guess that you burned that book.
1: I did. But just looking back on it, I'm like, man, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know? But at the time, I was just like, whatever. So, up until that point, you know, now we're in Karbala. It's middle of the summer in 2003. We lucked out and were able to have a hotel as our base. Now, don't think it's too fancy. Like, you're thinking of like an American hotel. It'd probably be like worse than your like average motel. Mm -hmm. But- at that
0: time, it was awesome because we had shelter. Right. You're not sleeping in your Humvee.
1: And there was like a kitchen where like, you know, guys could, you know, make food. And uh, it was it was some sense of like, okay, a little bit of a comfort thing. Mm-hmm. And so, we're um, in this hotel and guys start making mistakes because we've been there for a little while. We have like a little makeshift, super rudimentary theater set up. We are watch movies and like, you know, one guy sits down with his rifle slung across his back, and for some somehow some way a round goes off. Oh no! Skips off the ground and hits another guy. Oh! Luckily, it was just a flesh wound. You know, that's a big deal though. Guys were drinking and had like a negligent discharge off of uh, the balcony, and you know all these things. And we had uh, we had a restaurant right next door to us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Al Hussein's I can't believe I can remember that name Al Hussein's <laughs> And we'd go there And it'd be local cuisine You'd have You know Your typical Like what Your typical Iraqi dish Was like rice flatbread Grilled vegetables Some type of meat And they'd always give you a hookah And So it was It was, it was super awesome You'd go there And pay for a meal Or whatever And I can't remember what happened But that got cancelled I think like some like DOD guys came through And screwed it up for all, us all So, anyway, we're at this hotel and I'm in my room. My buddy Jan was my roommate and we're just, you know, listening to music, whatever, hanging out. And then we hear like a pop, like a a round one off down the hall. We're like, what the fuck was that? And next thing you know, we hear screaming. We go out to look and our buddy Drew is running out of the room saying, Corman up, Corman up. Which is like, you know, screaming for medical help. And we're like, dude, what is going on? And so, like, guys are going in there and then uh, next thing you know, they're pulling a guy out and he's just, like, bleeding from the head. Oh. And it proved fatal. The guy died. So, you have, like, the movie theater incident. You have the guy on his balcony firing off a round. And then, you know, on this, a separate day, you have an incident that happens in a room where a round goes off and a guy gets, is shot in the head. It was sad because, like, we hadn't, we hadn't lost anybody. This whole time, which was like a point of pride. We're like, yeah, hey, we got into a lot of engagements with the enemy, but like a few of us got wounded or whatever, but nobody died. Mm-hmm. And our first death is there's no enemy around? Like what what is going on? And it lo- later came out that this uh Corman, that was the guy that you know ended up getting shot. This Corman is that same as Macintosh, Doc McIntosh, was Spinning his pistol around, just kind of not thinking about it, and it was loaded, and ended up hitting him in the in the head, wrong time or whatever. And um, I'm like, really? That's that's crazy. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, spinning a spinning a pistol around goes off. Our Beretta 9-mills are double action, so that means you pull the the hammer back for a single action. Takes less pressure on the trigger to make it go forward. If you have a double action. You squeeze harder to get that thing to go back than forward to, to hit the round or have the round go. And so I had a nine mil and of course I uh, bred it and I make sure it's, it's unloaded and I start spinning it around. I'm like, dude, I, I cannot even make this thing freaking fire as I'm spinning it. So I go to single action.
0: Not to mention it has an external safety, which normally would be on, right?
1: And that's another thing. There's a safety on it. So yeah, I take the safety off, obviously, to see if I can get it to go double action. I can't. So I put it on single action and I'm spinning, spinning, spinning. The only time it would go off is when it's pointed away from me or like towards me, but lower. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, man. I mean, Doc McIntosh is awesome. I, I just hope it wasn't like a thing that something happened at home mm-hmm. and he made a decision on that because I experienced where something did happen at home and how it felt, you know, some guys might've took it a lot harder. I don't know. Maybe as a wife or- or something i don't I don't know, and I'm not saying that's what happened because I obviously didn't see it, but as as time went on, more and more things back home would happen in a negative way, and it was just sad man. there was a lot of Dear John letters, so we were there for a while, and then we went to this other base for a few months, and then we just finished out leaving Iraq. Driving south, passing um, Safwan Hill, which is like the first engagement that we had once we crossed Kuwait into Iraq, and seeing that hill, just thinking, all right, the country is pretty peaceful. Army's got this, and we're not going to have to come back. So get on the plane to come home, fly back. My parents meet us. All the families are on the base, and my lieutenant comes up, and he's like, you're uh, Rich's parents? They're like, yeah. They're like, your son's a hero. And I was like, man, that's crazy. That's crazy you said that. That meant a lot to me.
0: hmm Right. This isn't some random civilian coming up saying that to you, which you can brush off. This right. is like someone where it matters.
1: Yeah. And um, he, uh, he actually put me in for a bronze star for that incident on Highway 6. The company commander had pulled me aside about a month later and we talked about the incident. He was like, yeah, he's like, that was an attempted suicide attack. And I was like, oh, no kidding. He's like, yeah, it's a great job. So yeah, my lieutenant put me in for a bronze star with Valor. And then um, I, I don't know how it works, but there's like a, I guess a commission or a committee that goes through and decides if things are approved and go to the next level or whatever to get signed off. And I ended up getting... Navy achievement medal with Valor.
0: So they downgraded it essentially.
1: Uh, times two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, it's not for the medals. It's, uh, making sure all your guys got home and everybody in my unit, with the exception of, of Doc McIntosh for that really bad incident, was able to make it home that, that trip. So we didn't think we'd have to go back. That was September of 2003. The insurgency hadn't started yet. We're like, okay, we're just going to get them, uh, the country stood up, get their government going and their military going and their police forces and all that and say uh, peace and Saddam's out. Now we can uh, start building relations and doing that whole thing, you know, the whole diplomacy thing. But um, as time went on while I was home, more and more uh, things on the news were kind of pointing the opposite direction. Like what the hell's going on over there? The insurgency was starting, you know, improvised explosive devices. And what What is that, you know? Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen one. During my first deployment, only heard of one towards the end. Our guys had one detonate next to them, a different platoon. But um, it just seemed like they were, they were factions, like small factions of resistance. And late 2003, you know, the insurgency's going. Late 2003 is also when they found Saddam mm-hmm. hiding. And my friends are like, oh, cool, man. Like, you definitely don't have to go back now because they found Saddam Hussein. I'm like, I don't think it works that way. Right. Like, that would be nice if it did. But um, lo and behold, I find myself in Iraq about four and a half, five months later. I've only been home for about five months, not even. And then we're deploying again and we're going back. We find ourselves in the very western tip of where the Euphrates crosses the Syrian and Iraqi border. This deployment was way different than the, uh, the prior one. The reason being is uh, the level of of threat that we faced. You know, initially it was like conventional threat, you know, tanks, infantry, you know, those types of things. Whereas now we're fighting an insurgency, guerrilla style fighting. They're using uh, suicide, truck bombs, uh, improvised explosive devices. There's a sniper threat, all those types of things. So we get to Al Khaim and each – CAT team, I say CAT, that's a mix of all the different jobs in weapons company. So like each platoon had mortarmen, machine gunners, assault men, tow gunners, all mixed for versatility. They call it CAT, combined anti-armor. So we're on these different teams. I'm in CAT Blue. CAT Blue gets assigned to this very small city north of Kyme. The main effort was along the border in the west, which was Lima Company and Cat Red, a different platoon, was attached to them. But Cat Red was only there for uh, a little while because they had taken too many casualties and we had to replace them. So we swapped out with them and took over as the, the main effort for being the Cat Team attached to Lima Company. Daily, we'd conduct patrols. Driving around the city, we were still using a a soft skin tow vehicle, even though there was IEDs, we're just out there risking it, you know, in the heat. Driving around, most of the patrols that we did were during the day, and then the guys um, walking around would go at night, just because it's so damn hot over there. So, we do our patrols, and uh, we would get mortared daily, 2 to 3 in the morning, 2 to 3 in the evening. Usually is after like the first prayer and like the, the second to last prayer of the day for the local uh, mosque. That was pretty typical. Every once in a while we get sporadic gunfire or whatever and hit IEDs, but nothing too, too crazy. We uh, rolled over a mine one time. Not my vehicle, but the one behind me. And took some casualties. And those are the worst because, because you can't fight back. You know, you hit a mine and who are you supposed to take out after that? Like, the guys are long gone. It's been sitting there for who knows how long. Maybe it was there, like, when Saddam was in power, and they were just putting along the border of Syria, you know? We had uh, incidents like that, but nothing um, nothing too crazy. So, April of 2004, there's very well-known battles of Fallujah. Fallujah was, was going on, and... We were doing a really good job in Huseba, which is on the border of Syria. That's the main effort town, which is right next to Al-Qaim. It was a pipeline from Syria into Iraq into all the major cities, you know, Ramadi, Fallujah, Baghdad, all those cities. And we were very aggressive patrolling-wise. And we were like basically cutting off their, their supply to go and fight in those big cities. And so, I think it was after the first Fallujah, uh, we started noticing a, an uptick in enemy activity. The Marine Unit 2 our East, Kilo Company, one of their patrols got ambushed super heavy. And one of my uh, best friends from my original tow platoon, he was in Cat White, which was in, uh, attached to Kilo. He was shot in the head and killed. His gunner was also shot and later received a Silver Star. He made it. But uh, both those guys, after I had gotten hit by the truck during the suicide attack in Baghdad, I was assigned to them in their vehicle. So I got to spend months with them and work with them and became really good friends with them. And so that was pretty tough when uh, my buddy Elias Torres was killed and I wasn't there. That was tough. That also happened to be on April 9th, 2004, which is uh, a year after my incident to the day. So, April is kind of a weird month every year. Fast forward, we're noticing more stuff going on in Huseba uh, a few days after that. And on April 14th, there was an incident involving one of the squads from Kilo and a guy that by the name of Jason Dunham.
0: I read the book about him, Yeah. For anyone listening who wants to read the book about that, it's called The Gift of Valor. Very, very good book.
1: Yeah, Jason Dunham basically uh, wrestled a guy down to the ground that had a grenade, and he ended up putting his helmet over it and took the brunt of the grenade for his guys. So he was later awarded the Medal of Honor for the actions on that day, and it happened just uh, blocks away from where me and my patrol were, and we helped out with their medevac. So, we know, we're taking casualties, you know, the, the battalion is. So, we're, we're noticing more, more activity and we go on a nighttime early morning patrol into April 17th, 2004. My guys are driving around at night and we're doing our thing and just pretty typical patrol, you know, nothing nothing crazy. Get back to our base and we debrief and clean our rifles and all that. Get cleaned up, and you know it's like I don't know what time in the morning it was. It was probably like four thirty in the morning or something. Four o'clock. Everybody's you know hitting the rack, going to bed. And I'm like, oh well, I'm gonna go work out and then go get breakfast, and maybe I'll go to bed like later because we don't have another mission until like probably that afternoon. So there's plenty of time to fall asleep. And so I yeah, do my thing, go work out, go eat. Sun's so starting to come up a little bit, and then as I lay down. To go to sleep. And I had told you like we would had a typical, you know, few mortars in the morning, few at night. It was like 24 mortars landed on or around our our base, which is extremely untypical. Like what is going on? Next thing you know, we had uh, a Marine Force Recon sniper team. Actually, there's two of them out in the city. They were an observation post. They engaged a mortar team. So, they, they started firing and now they're compromised. Compromised meaning that, hey, they're not hiding anymore. People know they're there. Mm-hmm. And so, now they're calling for an evacuation as they're getting maneuvered on. So, Cat Blue, Bravo, which my section was Alpha. There's two halves to the platoon. Cat Blue, Bravo takes four vehicles out to go and reinforce those guys to fight the bad guys and to pick them up and take them back. They go out there and they get ambushed a couple of their vehicles are catastrophic, meaning they don't operate anymore. I think like uh, one got hit by an RPG and the transmission was no longer useful. And then two of our guys in our platoon got shot. And so now they're, they're calling for more reinforcements. And at the time, due to IEDs and, and a, a shortage, we had only had I think six gun trucks for our, our CAT platoon and CAT blue Four of them were already out there on that initial evacuation order. And so we had two gun trucks, loaded them up. And then we had like a couple of uh, high back, like bed seat Humvees where you could put troops in. So the guys from like the rifle platoons loaded up in those. And so we went out there. I was in the gun. My buddy Bill Rickey was driving. And I think we had our section leader, which was um, Sergeant Cole. Company Commander Captain Richard Gannon, and I think Gunny Sergeant Vay was also there because he became the company um, camp commander. He was like in charge of like the logistics and the rules of the camp, and he was there. And so we start driving out to go help these guys out. About halfway out there, we're driving through the city. IED goes off in between my vehicle, which is the lead vehicle, and the second vehicle. There's that old shit moment of like looking back, like, "Hey, is everybody okay?" Because I think we're good. Smoke clears, they get the thumbs up, okay. We're gonna keep rolling. Keep rolling. We come to the T intersection at the end of this uh street, this road, and uh our guys are probably about three or four blocks north of us. So we stop short of this intersection, just a little bit past it, and we're trying to reassess to figure out you know where we're gonna how we're gonna deploy our guys. And so guys start getting out of the high backs, start dismounting and getting on the ground, and all of a sudden, An RPG goes flying like right over my head. Now, I'm in the turret. This thing is probably like maybe 10, 15 feet above my head, just directly overhead. And so, I turn the the tow system around. I look to the optic and I see the the gunner, the RPG uh, guy that launched the the rocket. And so, I'm going to fire one right back at him. Like he's right next to a building. I'm going to hit the corner of that building and just explode him out. And the thing with uh, missile launchers, or even rockets, is you have to look behind you before you fire it. The reason being is there's a back blast. You have uh, like basically heat, fire, sh- and little pieces of shrapnel flying out the back and concussion. And so, I turn over my shoulder to check my back blast area and there's a bunch of uh, riflemen just standing around. So, I'm like, get the F out of the way, you know, move. And so, I aim back in and the guy's gone. And I'm like, hey... I only have two missiles in my truck. One's in the launcher and one is in the back. I don't know why we were so damn short. The guy's gone. Okay, keep an eye out. I'm in the truck the whole time. We end up moving north and getting to the guys that need us. And they had this building surrounded. It was like a two-story concrete building that was the bath party headquarters for the area. the as like a government building. Mm-hmm. Two of our guys were shot. We had a couple more wounded from shrapnel or spalling, I think it's called. It's like when a bullet hits a wall and like something from the wall comes off and hits you. They had a couple of those, no big deal. A couple of uh, vehicles were destroyed and they had these guys pinned down. Our Marines had enemy fighters pinned down in this uh, government building. And so, we're exchanging fire back and forth and I notice across the way – across the street to the north heads popping up and down i'm like what the hell there are more guys over there more bad guys so i'm keeping an eye on them too and i'm like talking to um, my lieutenant i was like hey do we have anybody across the street and he radios into our camp and ask him or whatever and like no nope, there's nobody there at least that we know of i'm like roger that next time they pop up their head i'm gonna freaking light them up with a 240 golf so lo and behold, they pop up their head. I start freaking laying down machine gun fire, and then I see an explosion on the top of that building happen—a small explosion. I look over to my right, and my buddy Jeff Clippinger had just launched a M203 grenade launcher round right on top of them. And next thing I hear, cease fire, cease fire, friendlies. Oh shit! I'm like, excuse me, and then the LT is like, he's like, yeah, he's like, uh, those are force recon guys up there. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they they didn't radio it in. They didn't give a position before, but now they are. And my heart, again, like sank. Like, dude, did I just kill some friendly guys? Right. Because I was like laying into them. And uh, Jeff Clippinger just dropped a grenade on him, And uh, they were all good, luckily.
0: Was that lack of radio in their position a misunderstanding? Or were they just trying to not out themselves in case someone was listening? Like, was that purposeful?
1: So I think what happened was. There were a couple of, of units out in town already, and those guys, I believe, were part of that platoon. They were force recon guys. I think they left the camp when their guys started getting fired upon and all the shit's going down, and they wanted to be part of it, but they didn't give a heads up of like, hey, hey, this is where we're at. So they wanted to come play, but at the same time, like they really put themselves at risk because they didn't give it a location, a pause rep, a position report. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, those guys had a little bit longer hair. They weren't wearing helmets. They are wearing the shemagh, Middle Eastern style wrap that they wear. And so, like, what do you expect? Once I heard that they were okay and nobody was killed or wounded or anything, I was like, okay, phew. All right. So, back to the building. So, we're dealing with this building. There's fire back and forth on this building. And it's like a stalemate, right? I have two missiles. And they're both tow two alphas, which are like a direct impact, direct fire missile. They have a minimum arming distance of 60 meters. So, just think like 60, about 60 yards on a football field. They won't detonate prior to that. So, you can hit something, but it's not going to blow
0: up. Like a 60-pound bullet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I uh, I tell my platoon commander, Lieutenant Isaac Moore, I was like, hey, Ike, let me drive in front of this building and put a toe up their ass. Let's do something. I got, I got this awesome platform right here. He's like, yeah. He's like, you're not going to have great covering fire. I'm like, well, what are we doing? We're just sitting here. And there's guys in there. And one of our guys can get killed. Let's, like, let's address this thing right now. He's like, hey, what do you need? I'm like, yeah, if you can, give me some covering fire. And then I want everybody out of the vehicle except for my driver. All right. So I had Bill Ricky, my buddy, drive the vehicle. I'm like, hey, Bill, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drive right in front of the building. I'm going to fire the missile. As soon as the impact hits, I want you to flip around and drive back here as fast as you can. He's like, got it. So, drive out. We're getting covering fire, but we start receiving fire. I put the missile in the best spot I think uh, will do the most damage. It was like the first level concrete wall, just like the face of the building. Fire it, impact. Once you fire a tow missile, you have to hit the uh, the lever above to open like the uh, the hatch that goes down over the missile casing. And What that does is it cuts the wire because when you fire a toe, it's connected by two wires. Mm-hmm. The two wires are basically like up, down, and left, and right to guide it. And so, I cut the wire, we come back. All right, load another one. All right, hey, let me put another another tow missile into that thing. Like, go for it. So, this time I'm like at the, uh, the corner of the building. Load it up, aim in, fire it off, man. Big explosion, you just see nothing but dust and smoke. I have no idea how much damage is done or anything. Winds blowing a little bit, dust and smoke start to clear. I had collapsed the roof on this government building. The second story is like broken into like two parts. Almost sixty percent of that second story was collapsed. So that's like all flat concrete coming down. And then I'm down missiles. I do a uh, a senior uh, corporal move. I was a corporal at the time. I go to the other tow truck that was uh, was there, and I steal their missiles. <laughs> and uh, it was funny too because there was a new guy in there and I'm like yeah these are mine he's like corporal I'm like no nah. so I take him and then uh, we repeat a third time in the back of the building but unfortunately these were totu Bravos and a Bravo has like a minimum arming distance of like 250 meters because these are designed for um, hitting armor that's um, entrenched and it's like a top down attack type thing it flies over, it senses the armor, and then it drops the warhead. When I shot it, it was too close. So, I mean, this building is like a uh, a re- like a like reinforced building. It's not your typical, you know, business building or whatever. Like, this is like thick concrete, and it didn't do much damage in the back. So, I was kind of pissed off about that. As that's going on, the, the wounded guys were able to get medevaced out, and they were getting calls that... Some more guys down the street to the east were pinned down by sniper fire and they think they know where it's coming from. I'm like, cool. Well, I just had stolen, uh, you know, I have an extra missile now. So we went over there. And one of the great things about a tow missile, is a great counter sniper tool. And so I'm like, hey, what do you think the guy's at? And it's like this barracks building to the north of where we're at, probably like, I don't know, 500 meters, 600 meters away. They're like, hey, we think he's like uh, – you know, fourth fourth level, probably one of the windows, like, towards the north. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, like, watching, watching, not seeing any action or anything. And then send the toe toe hits. Blows out of the wall. And I don't know if the guy died or not or if he was in there or what, but the sniper threat was gone. So, we had just fired, what, four missiles in, like, a short time span. We had given Captain Gannon a ride out there. During that time, there was a Marine from Lima Company that had been killed. He'd been shot. And uh, that was the first time I've ever seen a dead Marine. I'd seen plenty of dead Iraqis. And honestly, it didn't really faze me that much. But seeing the dead Marine was like looking in the mirror. It was weird. They had him in the back of a high back Humvee with that, that flat back and a, a poncho over him. And it just didn't register at first. I was like, what's wrong with him? Thinking he was like sleeping or wounded or something. Mm -hmm. And the Marine just looked at me. That was with him. He's like, he's dead. I'm like, wow. I mean, i I'd seen Doc McIntosh before, but it was, I don't know. It seemed different to me. I don't know if if Doc's thing was was self-inflicted on purpose or what, but this is like guys are fighting and like now guys are actually, I'm seeing them die. So as that's going on, were kind of just holding an area. Captain uh, Captain Gannon had taken three Marines with him to go uh, patrol south. And I guess they had heard some fire coming from around that area or whatnot. And uh, they were going to check it out. Over the radio, the uh, everybody was asking where the six was. Where's Lima six? The, like the identifier six is like the commander, mm. which is Captain Gannon. And nobody can get him on the radio. Like the last we heard or whatever of him was when he was going south on foot with a fire team to go uh, establish some security to our south. And now nobody knows where he was at. And this was going on for like a while. Like it was like, what in the hell is going on? People are asking where he's at. You know, the guy back at the base is asking each individual unit if they've seen him and nobody's seen him. Or like, what in the hell? This is our leader, our commander, and nobody knows where he's at. And so we start moving south. And they had found uh, him and the rest of the guys. And um, I guess what had happened was the, that fire team led by Captain Gannon was patrolling to the south on foot. They received fire. I think one of their guys had been hit, like maybe in the lake or something. And so they pulled him into a courtyard. Now, all, all the houses overseas in Iraq or whatever in the Middle East, they have like exterior walls on their property. Like a, like a citadel type style, right? And they have like a gate, whatever. Sometimes a man gate or a person gate and like a vehicle gate. So they pulled the wounded Marine into this courtyard inside this like property next to this building to get some cover and work on him. Well, they didn't know this, but inside that building was a group of, of enemy fighters.
0: Yeah, I think there was, there was nine of them from the story that I was reading about this.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they got mowed down. Just, just freaking mowed down by a uh, machine gun fire. But we were able to get over there and set a perimeter on the house to really lock it down. We had, I think, uh, one of the Lima platoons, one of their, their, their squads was on top of the roof with uh, Force Recon. And then uh, my guys were outside of the building. That was like the most intimate situation I've had with an enemy, we're so close. We were able to have a conversation basically. Like they're yelling at us, we're yelling at them type thing. They're lobbing grenades over the wall at us. We're lobbing the grenades over at them. They try to shoot an RPG at us. I shoot my 240 at them. Yeah, it was like a standoff. Our guys kept trying to do an upper level entry. They're trying to enter from the roof and come down and and kill the guys inside. But they were just met with so much resistance because there's quite a few of them in there and they're heavily armed. While that's going on, there's calls for mortars at a separate part of the city. And this is really developing into like a large battle because more of our guys are are getting out in the city and coming from other areas and stuff. At the same time, like it seems like there's more enemy fighters because there's more engagements going on throughout the city. So we had to leave that house and head back to the base to drop off our mortarmen so they can start dropping mortars in the city. After we had left... There was like a fuel trailer part outside of the uh, the wall. I guess they just started dousing the building with gasoline or whatever fuel it was. And they set it ablaze until the guys started running out and they started picking them off. So they killed every single one of the enemy fighters that was inside that building. We get back to the camp, drop off our motormen. They start lobbing rounds in the city. And we get radio transmission about a squad to the south of the city that's pinned down and they have wounded. Both gunshot wounds. One of them's a head wound. And there was nobody to go out there and get them. Like we were like the mobile unit, but I only had one vehicle now, one Humvee. And so I'm like looking around like, dude, there's no way we can just go out there like one, one vehicle because if we get hit, we're done. And so there's a few of uh, our guys that didn't make it out to the city yet in my platoon. I was like, hey, go find um, the seven-ton drivers and they used a seven ton for like trash, you know, moving trash or whatever. It was like, Hey, have them clean out the back. We're to use that for a medivac vehicle. I told another guy's like, Hey, can you get a, um, a machine gun on top of a seven ton? He's like, yeah. I'm like, make it happen. So a few minutes later, here we go. We got a driver that can drive the seven ton. We got a machine gunner uh, with a 50 cal on top. And we start rolling out to go get these guys. My one Humvee and a seven ton. Just, that was just on the fly. And um, we're driving out there and we can't find the uh, the guys.
0: And you're making the calls at this point. I mean, you don't have immediate leadership right there. Everybody's busy.
1: No, this is – um. I I was the most like senior guy in our little group right there. I was just a corporal, you know, 22-year-old 20, guy calling some shots basically. So, we roll out there. We're looking for him, looking for him. Nothing. We start taking fire, and like now the rounds are like right over my freaking head. I I get down in the turret, and not too far from my face, a round hits the uh, the front windshield, and like ricochets off, and like cracks the glass. And then I get uh, a radio transmission from the marine behind me in the uh, seven ton. He's like, "Hey, we have an RPG sticking out of our the side of our vehicle, right next to the gas tank." I'm like, "Damn it!" Looking around, I'm like, guys, you see anybody? They're like, no, like we have to head back. So we headed back, dropped off the seven ton and we're going to have our disposal guys deal with that later. And I'm just like sitting there and like, I felt bad because we couldn't get those guys. But at the same time, like I almost got my face blown off. So I'm just sitting there just like stuck, like mentally, like I don't know what to do. I'm getting yelled at by Bill Rickey who was dropping mortars like, you guys need to get back out there and get those guys. What the, you know, what the effort are you doing? Get out there. And I'm like, I couldn't find him. You know, we got lit up and all this stuff. And as we're arguing, lo and behold, here comes in this like small convoy into our camp with an ambulance. This major gets out, walks up to me. He's like, hey, are you Cervantes? I'm like, yeah. He's like, were you uh, just out there looking for the the medevac to get those guys? I'm like, yeah. I pull out the map of like, hey, here's where they're supposed to be. If you guys can get communication with them and have them you know, pop a a flare or smoke or some type of a signal. So, you know, you guys can identify where they're at and get them out of there. That would be the best bet. He's like, yeah, you're leading us out there. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like my vehicle was still smoking, you know? Right. We just got lit up. And to add to that, I talked about it a little bit before, that area um, outside the city along the border was like a minefield. So, we're driving out in this minefield Looking for these guys, so that's like in, uh, you know danger in itself, and so that's when I had to reach down and, and and grab a pair and go back out there, and I didn't want to. I'll be honest, I'm not you know some glory guy or whatever. Like I did not want to go back out there. I thought that would have been the end of us, but uh, we had to do it. There's no there's no choice.
0: Well, I imagine you. There's also some. I mean, aside from concern from yourself and you know having that worry. You also know, just like you came back before, that if you just go out there and get your vehicle taken out and now you guys are casualties, someone else has to come out and get you. So, you're just compounding the problem, I'd imagine, right?
1: Right. And I, I would rather, if it was up to me, I'd rather drive through the city than drive in the desert because in the city, you know, we run the risk of hitting an IED. I would rather hit an IED than hit a, um anti-tank mine. At the end of the day, like throughout the whole deployment, i had hit about 10 IEDs and I'm still here. But if we would have hit a mine, the chances would be way lower. And it's different. Like if if you're on foot, which those guys were that initially went out there, the anti-tank, anti-vehicle mines or whatever, you might like see them. You're not going to set them off. But if they're walking in the city and they walk past an ID, then yeah, they're super exposed and it's very dangerous. So it's like a flip-flop of of preference. So anyway, you got to get those guys back out there. Got to see if we can medivac these dudes and get them back and get them some care. So, we go out. I'm leading leading the uh, the charge. I'm in the gun with the, mic, the microphone in my ear. So, I'm like doing two jobs at once. This time, Brandon Phelps is my driver, real good guy. He was my driver for the initial try, but um, he wasn't earlier when I was doing the tow missile shots. Anyway, we're driving out. Hey, lo and behold, we're able to find these guys and Now we're getting shot at again. The firing stops and we're setting up a security around. We're not getting shot at. They're starting to load those guys. And I don't have any missiles anymore. I mean, for the platoon, I fired four missiles and that's it. Typically, you can load like 10 in a vehicle. And that's how we were rolling in and the first Iraq uh, deployment for me. But for some reason, we're super short. So I had no more tow missiles, but I'm using the site, looking at the city. And I see guys wearing all black and tennis shoes, dumping uh, these like aluminum can things. I don't know if it's like uh, brass from a machine gun or like the casings or the links, but those dudes are bad because anybody wearing all black or in tennis shoes was hostile. That's the direction we were given. Plus their actions. I was like, all right. If I would have had a tow missile, all of them would have been done, but I didn't. So I swung the turret around and uh, pointed the 240 at him, and I'm probably I might be like a thousand meters away. Oh, that's far. Maybe 900 to a thousand. So I can see him okay in my sight for the toe, but when I flip him around. I'm like, okay, hopefully my tracers are hitting near them, or I can walk them on with my tracers out of my machine gun to see, you know, that illuminated round coming out and hopefully hitting that area.
0: That's kind of outside of your effective range for a 240, right? For for a point target. Yes. Right, trying to aim and actually hit it. You could suppress something, but trying to hit something is going to be hard.
1: If you're trying to hit an area, I think about a little under 2,000 meters, two clicks or whatever, you can do all right, but you're going to be adjusting sights and all that stuff, your iron sights. For this, it was just like free gunning. I'm going to shoot. I'm going to aim in that area where I think they are, and I'm going to have somebody help me out to try to walk me on where they're at. So I start shooting that way. And then some of the other uh, gunners that were in that, that fresh convoy that came in uh, started shooting where I was shooting. And I have no idea if like we got the guys or not. But um, finally, we had the guys loaded up that were wounded and took them back and they got metabacked out and they survived. So, that was towards like the afternoon, towards early evening. Fighting's continual. It lasted in a total of about 14 hours of like active battle. And then things really settled down where, you know, positions were starting to be held. They started getting like a security posture and a watch set up. And then uh, the next day, we did a sweep through the city and hit almost every house and found a bunch of stuff. Later found out that um, 300 enemy fighters had partook in that assault that day. And initially, we're about like an hour plus drive away from our battalion area. We had maybe 150 guys at that camp. So we're outnumbered two to one for a good majority of the the morning, at least for the first couple hours. At the end of the day, I think we'd end up killing about 150, about wiping out half of their force. Wow. And then we wounded a bunch more. And then we took up others uh, as detainees or as prisoners. We lost five that day, most notably Captain Gannon, just because as a company commander, he didn't have to be out there. He didn't have to be you know, leading the charge. He could have been back at the base you know, and all that stuff. And he was leading from the front. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just incredible that he was able to go out there and, and lead like that and sacrifice. And then the, the other four Marines that, that lost their lives that day are all great, great heroes for sure. And the guys that got wounded too, there's quite a few wounded. It was just a long battle. And post-Battle for Husayba, which is what it was titled, for about a month, there were no attacks. Zero. I mean, we had a major victory that day despite our losses. You know, Fallujah had happened. And then now on the border, we had a major victory. A way for the uh, fighters to communicate that were against us were uh, sometimes like through prayer. Every Friday, Friday is like the holy day for the the Muslims, they always give like a message. And sometimes they would use that to like spread intelligence or plans or whatever. And so every mosque speaker was like shot out that next day. And so like, it's like the first like couple of weeks, it was just like peace and quiet. No, no fighting, no prayer uh, being blasted over a microphone or no messages that they were sending. It was just quiet. And then it started to pick up again but um, nothing to the extent that it was on that day.
0: Sounds like it was a hell of a day.
1: It was, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best way to say it was one hell of a day.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, I've heard little bits and pieces of this story, and I'd read Captain Gannon's story. And just for the record, I, I know that he was posthumously uh, promoted to major and yeah. uh, awarded a Silver Star, so yep. I'll yep. be thinking about him and all those guys that lost their lives uh, coming up on Memorial Day here. I was just going to ask you, you know, if there are any veterans listening out there, just transitioning to civilian life, I know some people have a hard time with that and have trouble finding resources. And and I especially hear a lot of um, sort of loss of sense of meaning and purpose when people leave the military because they, they go into civilian jobs and go work at Walmart or go work wherever and they just don't get that feeling anymore. And I just wanted to ask you... If you had any advice for veterans out there, maybe younger guys who are just getting out since, you know, you, I know that you work in law enforcement now and you've kind of moved on from your military time and it sounds like you're doing well, which is great to see. But yeah, if, if you have any final words or advice for veterans out there, I would love to add that to this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. First off, a very important thing is to uh, make sure you're, you know, getting the benefits that you deserve through the VA. That's, that's number one. If you have any medical issues or anything, like go get that checked out, go get it rated so you're covered. The biggest thing from transitioning from the military is you definitely lose that com- camaraderie, which you become so accustomed to and it becomes normal. And now, all of a sudden, you don't have it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you got to be able to find that somehow. If you end up going to college, most, I think, universities and colleges now have like a veterans organization, like a group of vets. And they also have like a, a veteran um liaison to help you get your educational benefits and all that. Hook up with those guys, you know. You find that you have a lot in common. Even if they're older than you, even if they're a different generation, like there's some things that are just timeless, you know? I think that law enforcement is an excellent transition from the military. If you're considering it or even if you haven't thought about it, just go on a ride along. Ask if you can be paired with a veteran. And go from there. You know, there's a lot of guys that I've taken on ride alongs that are vets and like it does not seem like work to me at all. It just feels like I'm hanging out with a buddy. And then I get their contact info and hey, so every once in a while we'll have like a vet night where a group of vets will go out and just go get dinner and drinks just for fun. And it's not just uh veterans too, some other people wanna wanna hang out and tag along and it's become part of the group and it's fun. So that's what I would suggest is uh Try to keep that camaraderie going somehow, some way. That way you're not just stuck up out there on Lonely Island by yourself and nobody can connect with you and, and uh, sympathize with what you're going through.
0: That's really good advice. Yeah, for anyone out there who wants to reach out, if you guys want to ask Rich any questions, uh, you can do it through our email, uh, dangerclosepod at gmail.com. Or if you have any questions for me or want to get in touch with other veterans, we're, we're working on sort of building a Rolodex of veterans that we can have these interviews with and get a record um, for them. You know, if we do this, the first thing I'm going to do, clean this up and let you have a copy. So you can have one for your family, for anybody else that wants to hear your story. And um, yeah, hopefully we can build a little bit of that sense of community with our listeners. Civilians can learn a little bit more about what goes on in the military and other veterans can kind of relate to people like Rich who have really been through it and have a lot of experience. So Rich, once again, I really can't, thank you enough for coming on. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your service and everything that you've done. And it's really inspiring to hear your story. So thanks again for giving us the time and uh, coming on to talk with us.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, again, uh, thank you for for your service and all the other vets out there, whether uh, you know, you're know infantry or war vet or not, man, taking the oath of the constitution I think is the most important thing and being uh, willing to sacrifice for others is is very, very awesome thing. So, thank you, all you guys.
0: Rich deployed one last time to Ramadi in Iraq, where he led a section of 20 Marines in combat operations in one of the most populated and hostile cities in the country. He was awarded a Purple Heart and the Navy Achievement Medal with Valor for the roadblock incident in Baghdad, and the Bronze Star with Valor for heroism while fighting in the 14-hour battle of Ushaba. His unit was outnumbered two to one by hundreds of insurgents for several hours before reinforcements arrived, and he was instrumental in breaking the ambush and evacuating wounded marines to safety. He was honorably discharged in 2006 and has been working as a deputy sheriff in Northern California, where he's a field trainer for
2: patrol. He's been happily married and has three kids, the youngest born just this year.